welcome to the Quorn stream. <laughs> I guess that's how you're gonna, well, I'm gonna say it. Um, today we'll be talking all about Euron Greyjoy, the Crow's Eye, Captain of the Silence, Lord Reaper of Pike, Son of the Sea Wind, Iron King of the Isles in the North, King of Salton Rock. Maybe the only character who can match Daenerys on impressive title counts and ambition for more. Euron finally arrives on the page in A Feast for Crows, like a hurricane that blows across the islands and reportedly sent his brother King Balon off the rope bridges to the drowned god's halls. I would say, though, the best summary of the crow's eye comes from the captain of the trading ship Miraham. Euron. Crow's eye, they call him, as black a pirate has ever raised a sail. He's been gone for years, but Lord Balin was no sooner cold than there he was, sailing into Lordsport in his silence. Black sails and a red hull, and crewed by mutes. He'd been to a shy and back, I heard. Wherever he was, though, he's home now. And he marched right into Pike and sat his arse in the sea stone chair and drowned Lord Botley in a cask of seawater when he objected. That was when I ran back to the Mirham and slipped anchor, hoping I could get away whilst things were confused. And so I did, and here I am. That's not all the story of Euron, though. He's not just a particularly bold and brutal pirate lord equipped with a cosmetic eye patch and wrestling love of theatrics. And wrestling level love of theatrics. There's a dark otherworldly eldritch quality to the man with the sky blue smiling eye and the dark as the void black eye which shines with malice like he tells alexa to play the music of eric zahn sees the colors of outer space reads from the necronomicon walks in the streets of unknown kadath and speaks with the crawling chaos neolarthotep pretty sure i said that right we'll see <laughs> and here to explore and here to explore the truth of yarn Greyjoy is none other than the author of the definitive Euron essay, The Eldritch Apocalypse, Emmett, a.k.a. Poor Quentin, the darling fancy lad of the Nauticast podcast. <laughs> Welcome, Emmett. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I've been looking forward to it. Euron's uh, definitely a favorite of mine. He was even before uh, George read The Forsaken at Balticon in, in 2016, but definitely became, I think, a lot more people's on a lot more people's radar after that. So uh, happy to be here. I think we can credit a lot of people's increased interest with Euron, probably directly to you. I mean, certainly myself, I would say, you've even convinced Jeff, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish, that he's a character worth thinking about, which is hard to do. You always got to get the Brendan Beefish scalp, right? That's when you know your theories made it, when you force Jeff to bend the knee. <laughs> Jeff bending the knee is, this is now what I want to see. Next time we're all together at a convention or something, Jeff has to swear fealty to Emmett. Yeah, we got to make a meme out of this, folks, or what are we good for? Got to survive just for this. <laughs> oh, well, a lot of people in chat. Bernie, uh, Andrew M, Aaron M. Oh, a lot of M's going on here. Oh, my God, the villain Frank Bum is here. Sanrixian. Oh, good Lord. We're never going to survive. Chloe. Oh, the whole crew here is, is all here. I'm glad we're all enjoying our isolation together today. And Precisely. Excitingly. Very excitingly, I read The Forsaken. I have not read any Winds of Winter sample chapters. I have stayed completely away from it. But today, just for this, just for Emmett, the fancy lad, I read The Forsaken, <laughs> and my God, I have never seen George write like that, not even in his old works. That, it's, it, it's almost like somebody else wrote it. <laughs> it's so unbelievably good, but completely against the style 
that he's put through so far, at least in A Song of Ice and Fire. Well, I'm honored you read it uh, on behalf of this. And yeah, The Forsaken obviously is you know not technically released yet, but it's my favorite chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, in part just because, yeah, it does stand out from so much of the series around it in terms of its tone and imagery. I do think, as we're going to talk about as we go forward with Euron here, that a lot of the stuff that comes up there is rooted in Euron's earlier scenes and descriptions in a more kind of uh, under-the-surface way. The Forsaken makes a lot of it explicit. But it's it's definitely an overt you know, genre move on George's part, a clear inclusion of like influences from outside of fantasy specifically. And as you say, even as in his older writings, which definitely, you know, took part in more genres and were more kind of wild and ragged than like the kind of structure of a song of ice and fire, which is huge, but also kind of precise in a lot of ways. The forsaken in some ways feels like a return to form for George. It feels like an older, like a chapter written in the seventies back when Mm -hmm. he was wearing those, those, you know, wacky <laughs> beads and clothes you see in his old pictures. The Forsaken feels in some way like a tribute to those times, like a nostalgic flashback. But it also is just wilder and spookier than anything else he's, he's put to page that I've ever read for sure. It was it was also far more brutal. It was almost a throwback mm. to his old works in that way where he's really, I mean, in some ways with like Theon's and Brienne's chapters, he has introduced elements of like, you know, torture and violence and mental and like mentally beating down somebody. But this is almost a throwback to like uh, his really old works, the ones that are really hard to read, where he's just like imagining almost torture porn at some point. It's it's something yeah. else. I remember when it came out, I was talking to Stephen Atwell about this chapter, and uh, the way I was describing it was, it's if you cr- combined the House of the Undying chapter with those first couple Theon chapters in dance, when you're just getting used to the Reek persona, it's if you had to do both of those gauntlets at once, like dealing with the intense (laughs) physical torture and identity loss that Aaron Greyjoy specifically is experiencing. But then on top of that, you have this whole layer of imagery and dreams and foreshadowing and, you know, philosophical talk that seems half serious and half like a parody. So it's just, there's, there's, there's a lot to sort through. So I can imagine, yeah, I remember just uh, hearing it for the first time, hearing a, a recording of George reading it passed on by some enterprising folks who remain anonymous. <laughs> and even that, just hearing it in George's gravelly voice was it was a trip. So reading it for the first time, I can imagine, was quite the experience. It's um, You bring up Daenerys's um, House of the Undying chapter, and that's probably the closest, but the tone is so very different because the Undying yes, are yes. trying to seduce Daenerys. They're trying to get her to stay. They're trying to not scare her off, really. They want to get her into the heart and have her stay forever. Euron is using that same power, but to just mentally destroy Aaron in a way that is, I mean, truly the malice of great of Euron Greyjoy on display. I would say, like, he even tricks him. He doesn't even let him know that this is what it's doing. Like Daenerys has some idea when she drinks the the wine that something weird's gonna happen. Aaron is force-fed it and then just starts tripping balls. Euron even starts leaning into some of the hallucinations. Like, it seems like when he... I'm not even quite sure. Did he know he looked like Yuri? Did he go back and forth? Like, what What does his eye see? Like, is can he... I don't know. That guy, This guy's amazing. Well, that, that's the, the shade of the evening is wonderful because it's so ambiguous. You had that in the House of the Undying, too. Like, the question is, if Danny had walked through that building without drinking shade of the evening, what would she have seen? The same stuff, different things, nothing. Would she have fallen to like a, a pit of spikes immediately? Like what's, you know, what is the drug adding and what is it just enhancing? And the same question applies to the Forsaken because obviously Aaron is terrified of Euron personally mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't have anything to do with a wider picture necessarily. 
but then there are certain images that come in the Forsaken that clearly seem connected to other things that people are talking about and seeing visions of, and Euron's plans are more grandiose in that way. So it's it's really quite ambiguous. And yeah, you're right. I think you make a great point about the difference between this and the House of the Undying being seduction versus like control and exploitation. And that like, you know, the House of the Undying, like, you know, it's it's such coming of age stuff. It's like the first act of, you know, a protagonist. Like I think about like, you know, a movie like Boogie Nights or another movie like where a protagonist or Goodfellas, like our protagonist is being introduced into an underworld or a group of cool, interesting mm. people. And that's what, how the Undying are kind of presenting themselves. Like, you know, they're just, they're, they're passing a joint to Danny. Her consent <laughs> is at seemingly at first important to them. Euron and Aaron, the Forsaken, this is like MK Ultra. This is like you're yeah. chained to a wall. There is no pretense of your consent being important. This is like, you know, probably what the Undying maybe had in mind for Danny when the seduction was done. I was thinking the exact same thing. This is probably where it would have ended up for her, based mm-hmm. on the fact that they essentially all jump on her and try, start trying to eat her and lick her eyeball. It's, it's a really disturbing scene where the the undying actually start moving, but there's de- definitely a difference in terms of how they go about it. And it, it, I think it's really interesting that the warlocks are also present, that Pyat Pri oh, yeah. is in. Oh, oh my god. Well, I think we should... Um, Put a little bit of the Forsaken talk on hold, and let's go into... Put a pin in that. Absolutely. Put a pin in that, because we're going to get that a little bit later. Just I had to talk about the Forsaken, because I read it about 20 minutes ago. Um, so I think one thing that a lot of thing that a lot of people overlook about Euron is kind of, how did this character come to be? And like, as a person, within his society, within his family, like, what the, the Ironborn don't produce the coolest guys in the world. Like, Victorian is... An amazing shithead. They, their whole society is based around uh, slavery and another name and stealing and killing the innocent. They do not, they do not sow. Uh, they only reap that kind of thing. But Euron is something else entirely, and it's kind of how how did this exactly happen? Especially because well, I think we'll start off with his father Quellon. Quellon actually seemed like. A pretty cool dude in terms of a song of ice and fire for uh, Lord Paramounts. Uh, he started off sort of with the old way. He was a, a reaver. He got famous going around beating up other captains. But then, as he got older, he kind of turned away from that, and he started trying to reform the Ironborn from being the, I think the the term from Reddit I saw once was the shitheads of Asshole Island, into trying to join the Seven Kingdoms. And that's such an unusual take that um, Asha really seems to embody when we're talking about the King's Moot, that her her Greenland strategy joining the, the Seven Kingdoms really goes back to Euron's father, Quellon. And you can kind of see this in Quellon's marriages. So he had three marriages. Mm-hmm. His first one was to House... Let's see here. Oh, I got this one. House Stone Tree. With the sigil is a dead old tree that looks like a weirwood. Okay, that's very Ironborn. Like, nothing grows on the Iron Islands, a dead tree, Naga's bones, that kind of thing. Then he marries mm-hmm. uh, a woman from House Sunderly, and that is Euron, Balon, Victorian, Uri's, and Aaron's mother. And that sigil is a drowned man, pink and pale, floating upright in a blue-green sea, his hair streaming upwards as fish nibble at his limbs. There could not be a bigger Ironborn sigil symbol than that. It is literally the drowned man. It is their religion. It is exactly what they believe will happen to them. They will rise from the watery halls just like this guy. And then his third wife from House Piper. And it's um, 
a minor house from the Riverlands, well, kind of a medium house, not quite at like the uh, the Blackwood Bracken level, kind of like a step below, but their sigil is a beautiful blonde naked maiden, and it's like, it, you can see sort of the progression of Quillon in terms of the sigils of the women he married. It went from just like terrible ironborn to maximum ironborn to, you know what, it sucks here. <laughs> It really does suck being on the Iron Islands. Our society is terrible for even me, Quan Greyjoy, King of the Iron Islands, or Lord Paramount of the Iron Islands. Why don't I try this Greenland stuff? Let's try a Pink Maiden. Let's see how this goes. And it's kind of... I think that... Oh, go ahead. I think that's a great way of capturing his arc there in that thought process. I always think about the Iron Islands of... You know how... um. Jorah describes Drogo's thought process in book one as, you know, if he thinks of Westeros at all, he thinks of a few windswept islands with, like, some castles clinging to them. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Iron Islands actually are. <laughs> like, that's that's Drogo's image about them. It's 100% correct. So I think, you know, so much about Ironborn politics is about people who realize that and want to live in that reality and people who want to just pretend that's not the situation. And the, the new way you could call this, yeah, is exemplified by Quellon you know, reaching out with his, his marriage packs to the mainland, because that's, you know, that's a big deal. That signals to all his other lords that that's a way to gain influence and power. Like, hey, if you want to get in with Quillon, maybe you should do as he does. If you marry a, a Riverlands maiden, he's going to notice that, and he's going to be happy about it. It naturally makes trade and cultural influence back and forth stronger. And just within Quillon's own family, you know, that means that any, any sons and grandsons out of that are going to have Riverlands blood in them. Just look at what happens with Rob. You know, him being not just a Stark, but a Tully. That helps him immensely when it comes to the Riverlands being part of his admittedly short-lived kingdom <laughs> of, of, of the Northlands and Riverlands. Yeah. Presumably, Quellon was going for the same kind of thing here. Unfortunately, you know, that's the third wife, so you still got the sons from the from the first and second one kicking around to get in the way. Well, the first one, I don't... Maybe not so much at this point. Um, not for long. More the second one in this case, yeah. It's also important to note that Quellon invited maesters and septons to the island. And trade, as mm. you said, like the idea, the the quote I had to at the beginning was from the uh, captain of the Miraham. I can imagine that 150 years before this, nobody goes to the Iron Islands for trade. What would you even trade with? What what products do they have to give you? Do you even have assurances that if you sail into Pike, that you're ever sailing out again? Yeah. What if you walk into town and you get you know killed in the bar because it's the Ironborn? It's the old way. This is you know not ev not everyone who lives on the islands are like this, but. There's definitely drawbacks to presenting yourself that way culturally. You're definitely gonna gonna slow down the amount of people who want to show up in Lordsport at all. Yeah, definitely. And when you look at how Quellon was trying to change the Ironborn, and you get to Euron, who is the absolute opposite. It's a full rejection of not only Quellon's ideas of reforming the Ironborn, but somehow Euron even starts rejecting the Ironborn themselves. Like he's not really a part of them. He's kind of using them. The interaction between him and his father. And especially, it seems to be that his taking of the third wife from uh, from House Piper and his and all these ideas really seem to have gotten to Euron because he is deliberately going after the people that represent these things, like the the sacking of the Reach. Um, when you look in his hold in the Forsaken, I mean, there are there are warlocks, there are priests of Relore, there's Aaron, but then there's also three Septons. So he's taking it personally, the Faith of the Seven and the Greenlanders, and trying to kind of burn them down almost to spite their father, which is weird because as far as we know, Quellon seems like a pretty okay guy as far as uh, Ironborn go. I can see that Balin's rejection of Quellon makes sense to me, not only in terms of just sons rebelling against their fathers, 
But also just politically, given uh, the Iron Islands, given how the old red tails, as Theon calls them, how strong they remain, it makes sense that the definitive reformer, his son, would become a flashpoint for the the, the more kind of revanchist uh, reactionary forces on the Iron Islands who want to drag things back to the old way. And as Dan Pair says, Balon was, you know, climbing the cliffs at 10 and captaining his own ship at 15 <laughs> and all that stuff. You know, he, he he fit the myth. He fit the legend. He made the old way seem real. And that's what the Ironborn like. They like someone who can make this objectively ridiculous idea that yeah. they're the best people and in charge of everything. They like people who can make that real. And I think Euron kind of learned how to play that role. But he also, he, he, he kind of sees this weird dark mirror of his father's interest. Because his father had interest in other cultures. And so does Euron in terms of like devouring them all, in mm -hmm. terms of bringing all these other cultures together as not as like, you know, partners, allies, trading, uh, you know, trading partners, but as, as slaves, as fuel for his fire. So it's, you have this old way, kind of new way back and forth in the Iron Islands and you're on, you know, he kind of stands outside that a little bit and he kind of partakes of both. It's almost like he's decided not only to rebel against Quellon, but also Balon at the same time, where- That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. It's a total rejection of everyone above him and the most, the most angsty, the most like Darth Vader-ish kind of turn that you can ever imagine where, but there's no, unlike, I guess, Vader, there's no way back for Euron at this point. He has fully turned into Palpatine, kind of. Yeah, we'll get into more of it, but yeah, Euron is, you know, he's, he's steadily untethered himself from any connection to humanity, seemingly uh, deliberately from a young age, just, you know, starting within his family, and that's, that's something we see a pattern of, you know, a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire villains and a lot of, you know, murderers in the real world as they start with the people close to them. Because, you know, that's that's the the training wheels for people like Euron. You start with the people in your household and then you, your ambitions start getting set higher. Yeah, and speaking of what he did to um, his family, he confesses in The Forsaken to three murders. Um, one was Balon, obviously. George finally confirms that Yes, Euron did hire a faceless man basically to throw Balon off the uh, off the rope bridge and kill him. But then he also killed his older brother Harlan, who was um, had grayscale, right? And he mm -hmm. he says he pinched his nose until he died. That one is awful, but it's not as bad as Euron gets. That's like you can sort of see that as like the start for him, where you, you can almost see it as almost like a mercy death. He was going to die anyway from grayscale. He couldn't move. He was... Okay. Not great, it's, it's, but not his worst. It's it's the, the, the fewest consequences in terms of getting in trouble and in terms of the person he was killing. It is still murder, but it's also, yeah, his, his clearly his starting point. He wanted to start it out at the simplest possible way. And as he says in The Forsaken, he went outside and pissed into the sea afterwards and waited for God to mm -hmm. strike him down for what he did. Never did. And they didn't. He's like, oh. So he just... He, and he just took it as a passport to doing whatever he want, which is just a lot more of that. Yeah. And that's we'll we'll get into more of that theme as as we go through. But that's that's definitely a, a key to Euron's character, and I think crucial to why he names his ship the Silence. Is his his argument is, you know, if if the universe were were made in anything resembling a just fashion, would I even exist? <laughs> yeah, he takes clearly not. His own success continues to fuel his own ideology, where it's like, hey, exactly. It, everything proves his point. Yep. I'm just continuing to do it. And then he also killed his younger brother, Robin, the um, the son of Lady Piper. Um, mm -hmm. it's, there's also a bunch of stillborn daughters along the way. It's When you consider Euron, you have to say, did he have a hand in this? Could be. 
who knows he is so brutal and then there's also of course the um the really terrible door creaking that happened with Aaron and uh Uragon, his younger brothers where Euron essentially confesses again in the um in the Forsaken to uh molesting and assaulting them as kids which is <sighs> Euron, come on man what are you doing and, what, and how does he put it? I taught you to pray. I heard you praying when I came to your door. And he wants to know, were you praying that I would choose you or choose your brother? And that's that's the the really dreadful idea at the heart of Euron is that he wants to he wants to convince everyone that they're like him, mm-hmm. that they they like this too. They have consent in the same way that like when Chiswick is telling his big story in Heron Hall about how he and his friends raped that girl, he keeps saying like, oh, she, she decided she liked her. They got no one to blame but themselves. That's the same kind of logic Euron works on where he wants he wants to get Aaron to pray to him. He wants to get Aaron to love him at some level. He wants to get Aaron to say, yes, I wanted this. Yes, you were right. And that's because Euron wants to be right about his whole there is no God that justifies everything worldview. Everyone's praying to me. I taught you how to pray. There's no one else. And, you know, it's, that's when people talk about I've often seen people talk about Euron's character and say that the, the molestation of Aaron and Euron is like a step too far in terms of making him awful. Like, why do I have to, why am I even reading about this? Mm-hmm. This is just like a wave of unique awfulness that makes it hard to just emotionally process everything else. And I think that's fair. Every, obviously, everyone, your mileage may vary. But I think the fact that he talks about it that way, specifically religiously, is what links it to everything else. This is like a case Euron has been making with a lot of different kind of atrocities his whole life. There is nothing. There is no voice. There's just a void. There's just me. I'm going to take over where a throne should be floating somewhere in the cosmos. It also says quite a lot about Euron as a person that as he is describing his own abuse to Aaron as like face to face, his comment is about it is like, what did... How how are you perceiving me while this was happening? It was like he doesn't not he, he doesn't perceive other people as real. Basically, everything's just a plaything for Euron, which I really comes across in those scenes. But also how he treats his brothers, how he treats other people in the world. Everybody's a tool to Euron's greatness. Everyone's an audience member at best. You know, he's just. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a, a godlike view on everyone being insects. Again, come back into the house of the undying. That's just kind of Euron's head state permanently. Also because he just drank way too much shade of the <laughs> evening. Which is also what you have to filter everything Euron says and does is that he is constantly tripping his head off. True. Which both makes him even more dangerous but also just kind of ridiculous. Uh, you know, I think there are there are plenty plenty of good reasons to roll your eyes at Euron. I think he is going to have a major impact, but stuff like that where he's just like, "Come on, dude, how <laughs> how many how many of the drugs? Why all of the drugs? Just just every drug he can. He's just constant. Like, does he eat or does he just eat drugs? It's possible. Yeah, he's an just addict, drugs. and it's that's the that's the spooky. He reminds me of like there was a couple of years where like David Bowie didn't eat, and he was just like surviving on like cocaine and red peppers and milk. And, like, he doesn't even, like, remember the music he was making. And he's like, Mick Jagger put, like, a fucking pentagram on the floor of my pool. It's going to kill me. Like, that that era of, like, 70s paranoia, way too many drugs artists. Yeah. Like, Euron is, is in part born out of that, I think. And, unfortunately, he has power. Uh, actually, bringing up exactly. in the chat, Andrew K., I think I saw it, was talking about uh, Bloodraven's role in this. And I, we're going to get that into um, just a couple sections. But you definitely cannot understate the role that um, it seems that magical manipulations on his mind have seemed to have broken him from a young age. That his questioning of all realities, question of Ironborn, their, their their entire culture, his destruction of the world around him is probably in, in direct response to someone destroying his mind as a kid, kind of like we see Brand does. 
Oh yeah, something is just wrong inside there in a way that is not like not even just like oh he's he's more paranoid or more ambitious than most people. I'm like he if you look through his eyes, there's probably like tentacles bursting out of pillars and like static coming over his vision. Like something is is wrong. And uh, you know, as you said earlier, as we'll get into, the big question that Euron provokes is what happened? Mm-hmm. How how did this how did this occur? Why is he like this? And I think that's if one may get the winds of winter, I think there there will be a more explicit exploration of that. Definitely. And to move on to what what is the sort of his place on the Iron Islands? If you look at his family structure, Euron is the unfortunate second son in the family. Mm. In a world mm-hmm. where Balon's getting everything, Euron will be getting nothing. The only stuff he can get is kind of what he can take, what he can reef, what he can earn for himself, take from others. And that kind of, it's one of the major downsides of the kind of primogeniture um, um, structure of Westeros is that Euron is a noble. Euron has access to everything he wants in the world, but he also kind of has nothing. And as long as Balon and Quellon are in front of him and Balon's sons, Euron kind of doesn't matter. He's in this weird, awkward place. And you see it with uh, other characters. You see it with uh, Oberyn Martell. You see it with Arian Brightflame, Bittersteel, uh, Daemon Blackfire, Harwin Hoare. Um, Stannis, Robar, and Waymar, Royce. There are all these characters who, until Stannis gets Dragonstone, who really have nothing. And it's up to their older brothers and their fathers to decide what their worth is. And it appears that Euron has taken the worst possible reaction to that kind of stress that's coming from the way society is structured. It's that instead of trying to suck up to Quellon, trying to suck up to Balon, he has gone the other way and says, this is all nonsense. I don't care about any of it. I'll take what I want because that is the iron way. That's the old way. I'll take my crown by the iron price. I'll take the world by the iron price because nothing will be given to him by anybody. Euron does not care about having ground under your feet, Yeah. right? He takes the Iron Islands, gives them away to Eric Ironmaker. That's true. As far as, far as he's concerned, he's probably never going to go back to the Iron Islands. I bet he plans not to. <laughs> he takes the Shield Islands, he gives them away. He never intended to hold them in the first place. All he does is roam around the world taking stuff, converting people into blood that's just fodder for sacrifice. He doesn't care about anything but the sheer horror experience of it. He doesn't care about legacy. He doesn't care about foundation. He doesn't want to have something around he can pass on to anybody. Yeah. And even a lot of the worst villains in The Song of Ice and Fire do care about that. <laughs> and I think that's in part just because of how thoroughly his brain got scrambled and how his priorities got changed. And then you drop that within Ironborn culture, which, you know, the old way does encourage a lot of, you know, bloodletting and horror and flamboyant performances of violence. So you might not necessarily notice a guy like Euron until it's way too late because of how he can disguise his shenanigans within that culture. And then, as you say, you add on the filter of the second son and how that encourages you to strike out into the world. And you, know, you even have a like a grandiose version of that with like Daemon Targaryen, the rogue prince. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Euron is just like the most nightmarish version nightmarish version possible of all those guys like he went out into the world like Oberyn or like Bittersteel traveled all over joined a bunch of different companies you know Oberyn has similarities to Euron in that way like studied at a bunch of different places learned some dark arts but with this 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 singular horrible goal that defines Euron that the rest don't have the rest were doing it like you know for family or for fun but you know Euron as he says he's at it for woe he's at it for the misery itself (laughs) he really is not trying to I guess take what is his he's trying to make it irrelevant i guess that would be kind of his his way of that's a good way of putting it yeah yeah Um, yeah. 
And, and when you look at how this second son idea or just the male primogeniture, uh, I talked about this with on a Patreon episode a while ago with Eliana of um, Girls Gone Canon, but it even the stress it puts on everybody that isn't the firstborn is so enormous that it takes two characters like Rob and John, characters who objectively mm -hmm. love each other, best friends growing up, and one day Rob says, you can never be the Lord of Winterfell, and it creates this enormous divide between them that John mm -hmm. will never forget. As long as he lives, he's going to remember, and it's gonna, it brings rage to his mouth. It actually put him into a blind rage where he almost killed... Ah, Iron Emmett, sorry. Um, almost killed him because he was so angry at that memory. And that's only because of the way the inheritance structure works in Westeros. That is a... A, a conflict that does not have to exist between siblings. And it's one that Euron, as I said, affected him in the worst possible way, I would say. Well said. And that, yeah, yeah, that it's it's all in terms of uh, how you relate to the previous generation. And I think you can... Mm, there's a clear relationship between Balin and Quellon, but I'm curious to what you think the dynamic between Euron and Quellon might have been like. It's, it's difficult to say because Quellon had changed his personality or his values over time. When he was younger, when he was the full Ironborn Quellon, he was also a giant. And he was an amazing fighter. He was like everything mm -hmm. you wanted to be on the Iron Islands. He was... Dagmar Klefja, basically, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was awesome. Everybody loved Quellon, which is even why he was able to introduce his reforms. Because everyone was like, I mean, I don't want to stop breathing, but Quellon's great. So, like, can he do wrong? Well, obviously, Balon and Euron thought that way. But when he was younger, Balon seems to be the, the golden child that would have fallen away as Quillon started devaluing that kind of personality. But even as he does that, he's also devaluing Euron. So he went from being the second choice when his strengths were valued by his father to being completely ignored. And I can't imagine how much that kind of must be influencing him even to this day that <laughs> at every point in his father's life he did not like Euron as much as somebody else. Yeah, it's it's interesting to compare Euron to other villains in the story in this dynamic. You got chips on the shoulders with characters like Ramsay or Tywin or Littlefinger. Euron doesn't strike me as anyone who was ever disciplined for anything in his entire life. No. Like not even once. Which suggests either I think that maybe Quellon liked him at some point, like thought maybe, oh, I need, maybe I need to cultivate the backup because the heir is looking like he's really into the old way and he might roll back all of my reforms. Or, yeah, just kind of benign neglect that really no one paid much attention to Euron and, you know, he seemed to be, he seemed to have things going on in his own head to amuse him. You know, mm -hmm. I think Euron could, could easily squirrel himself away in corners and, you know, torture animals or whatever it is he did for fun when he was a kid. <laughs> probably, probably that. Uh, any, any number of reasons. You know, when Quillon seemed like a busy man with, with a lot of kids. It's entirely possible he just had no idea what was going on with Euron. In the same way that a lot of, I think, I, I, I've seen that in, like, large families before, where, like, uh, uh, gifted kids are the ones that, like, don't get much attention, and so they end up getting into some dark or at least just, like, you know, mm -hmm. life, un uncomfortable shit in their lives because their parents are focused on the obvious problem children. And maybe, like, Balon was the obvious problem child and Euron was the <coughs> Victorian child. Right? Exactly. Imagine a Victorian as a son. And then, because Euron is an unbelievably capable character. He succeeds in almost everything he wants to. He's risen higher than any of his brothers. I'm sure it was like that when he was a little kid. I bet he was a little prodigy. And it's like, like you're saying, 
okay, well, Euron's got his head on his shoulders. I got to worry about the uh, dumb as a stump Victorian, or I got to worry right. about my son with grayscale, or I got to worry about my um. Or my lords who might rebel against me because I just married a piper. Yeah. Like, well, Quillon's got a lot on his table. He's like, well, you know, okay, Euron's like setting things on fire with his mind, but Victorian doesn't know how to read. So which, <laughs> of the, which of them am I going to spend my day on? And, you know, I get that. Victorian might drown in an inch of water. i got to watch mm-hmm. out for that, kid. Um, and there's also something interesting about exactly how Quillon died. It's noted um, that he was um, in poor health towards the end of Robert's Rebellion, but the Ironborn had not entered the war. Uh, Quan had kept them out of it, sort of taking a time and Lannister approach, saying, like, we're trying to build something here. Whichever way this goes, I want to make sure that I'm still here and in charge. I don't want to die on a battlefield. I want my sons to die on a battlefield and everything to revert to the old way that I'm trying to get away from. So he's sitting it out. He's very cautious, very wise, I would say. The, the, the text goes out of its way to call Quillon wise, which I would agree. And then, right at the end of Robert's Rebellion, Rhaegar's dead. It's noted that Euron and Balon convince Quellon that they have to go reaving now. They have to make their mark for Robert so that they'll be rewarded at the end of it. They don't want to be... They essentially make the argument, you can't just sit on the sidelines. You have to do something like Tywin eventually does, which is he Mm. kills the Targaryen children in order to secure his place in the new regime and not be punished for sitting it out, which... Is very often happens in civil wars. You're not safe if you do nothing. So, but the, then they make the odd choice and they go down to the Mander River and start essentially reaving up it, trying to like um, trying to hurt the Tyrells. I imagine the idea is since they're on, they're sieging Storm's End, you hurt the Reach. Therefore, Robert will be happy about it. I guess that's the logic behind it. But it's it's kind of it's too late. <laughs> it's it's over. There's no chance for them to get any glory. It's a stupid plan. But it seems that Quillon felt like he had to because Euron and Balon were pushing him. Yeah, it's a weird combination of, you know, trying to show off politically you're on board with the new king, but it's you're still doing a reaver thing. You're still just going for the Arbor. You're still just going for the Mandy. You're still just going for the place you can steal the most from. So it's not exactly integrating you into a new realm. And yeah, that's ultimately the problem with the new way. I like Quellon's ideology. The problem is the old way isn't just going anywhere, and you tend to make it you tend to make it worse when you push it back in its corner because now it feels like it has something to fight for. So none of the new way advocates have ever really answered the question of what do you do about the old way politically still around. And in part, maybe Euron is there to just add, add as like a like you know just a, a, a cleanse the colon. Like you know he's just gonna like shatter the old way with his fall so hard that maybe Asha can pick up the pieces and get the new way going again harder than it ever has before. But yeah, I think you can see the weaknesses right at the end of Quellon was convinced by his sons to go fight, and it definitely opens up suspicions about how exactly he died there. Uh, and especially who actually did the convincing, because this is the start, I think, of a pattern here on story where he gets rid of his rivals, not usually by actually like killing them, but he convinces them to do things that seem good on the surface, that have logic behind them, but the end state is horrible for them. Quellon, like you were saying, Quellon's reaving of the Reach may endear him a little bit to Robert, but it's also marking them as outside. He is not new way Quellon if you're reaving, if you're just sacking the, the Reach. You're not telling the rest of the lords that you're on their plan now that you're with Robert. You're still saying, I'm Ironborn. Quellon dies during this in a battle on the Mander, and uh, um, near the Mander. I think you have to really ask, how did he die? 
it's it just sort of comes back that he did did euron have a hand in it did balon have a hand in it it's very likely because euron is much more a, uh, a kind of like a spy master like a varish character well with the tentacles instead of spider claws i guess mm-hmm. that he he likely pushed balon and quellon into the situation where one of them had to go and it seems like quellon the elder failing health was the one to go at this point and later he got around to balon i would guess yeah, I mean, obviously, Balin might have a motive to get rid of Quellon, given, again, the political divergences between them. But, yeah, Euron is the one who, as he says to Aaron of the Forsaken, has quite the history of kinslaying. So, who knows, maybe it was even a joint effort. Maybe it was like a murder on the Orient Express thing, where they all separately did it. They all they all <laughs> killed Dad for their own reasons. But, yeah, so that's kind of what, what propelled Quellon, uh, Quellon what propelled Euron into adulthood, and, as you say, established this pattern of him being more a spy master using kind of proxies disavowable assets including his own family to get his his dirty work done so he can keep his hands relatively clean but then um as, as we start you know moving forward into euron's adulthood and, and talk about what he's doing we do have to circle back to that question you raised earlier of just why is he like this what what makes him so different from his brothers why does he stand out there has to be there has to be an event he can't just have woken up deciding to be like this one day what was it that's it's the million-dollar question I think we're looking at the wins winner. Just going to pause one second and say uh, there's 106 people, it looks like, in the chat. Thanks, you guys, for showing up on Saturday afternoon to talk about Euron. Uh, slam that like button. Share everything. Um, I think this is a good time to do a few little plugs and that kind of thing. So, obviously, you can go to uh, my Patreon, patreon.com slash Magician. My patrons have the doc that we're reading from, so they can already see what Emmett has written. Furiously typing is actually... I was watching as some of them were coming, and I was like, wow, Emmett is typing fast. He is really enjoying <laughs> this. But yeah, they can follow, you can follow along ahead of time. You get access to patron-only episodes. You get stuff ahead of time. Um, art from Sam Rickshane when she makes it for my videos. And yeah. uh, upcoming for me, I'm going to be doing a short video about Arya and the Faceless Men. Essentially, um, what, does, what does the Faceless Man coin do? What is it for? Mm. How does it function within their society and within Bravos? It will be a short one that I'm going to do, one that Jeff has been looking for for a long time. It's um, how young Griff took Storm's End, a, diff a different idea than he has, something that came out of Fire and Blood. Um, what about you, Emmett? What do you guys have coming up on Nauticast? Well, so you can uh, check out Not A Cast, the podcast I do going through chapter by chapter, A Song of Ice and Fire with Jeff Hartline, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish. We're right now about halfway through Clash of Kings. We just got to the Storm's End chapters where Stannis and Renly faced off. So you can find our stuff over at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F.podbean.com. And over on Patreon, we can get episodes early and uh, multiple uh, patron-only episodes every month and show notes and more. That's Patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And you guys are you're in a storm of sorts now, right? Clash of Kings. Oh, right at the end. Clash of okay. Kings. Yeah, so we just we just did Stannis versus uh, Renly, their oh, big God, uh, dialogue right. scene. I We're doing that. that, and then we got uh, Renly's death, and we also got coming up a couple more great uh, Arya and Harrenhal chapters that we're going to have some great guests on for. We got the King's Landing riot coming up, House mm -hmm. of the Undying, a lot of great stuff coming up, and we got Ooh, House you can of the find Undying. on our Podbean. Yeah, it's going to be great. You can Ooh, find cool. our Podbean episodes going back all the way through the first half of Clash and through a Game of Thrones, including when we had you on Sir for John's first couple chapters in Clash. So yeah, we have a we have a great time, me and Jeff. So come on and check that out if you haven't already. And definitely the uh, the live streams you guys are doing now. Those are a lot of fun. Yes. Normally pre-recorded. Now you guys are 
like all of us. We're doing them live every week while we're doing on the inside as a, as a people. Absolutely. So our next one will be uh, this upcoming Monday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be doing the second half of that uh, Stannis versus Renly chapter. Uh, and you can just search Not a Cast ASOIAF on YouTube to find us. And uh, we'll be doing that, like I said, Monday at 8.30. So hope to see some of you there. I'll be there. I can't wait. Excellent. Um, that's all I care about. Really. All right. So let's go back into the crow's eye. So I think this is something that's coming up in the chat. A lot of people are talking about it as we're <laughs> describing Euron's backstory. It's what broke his brain. And I think the most people have come around to the idea that it was probably Blood Raven or mm-hmm. one of the green seers because apparently they can move throughout time. Who knows which one it was. But we're, we'll say Blood Raven because of the, uh, the way that it seems that Euron is trying to look like him. In a weird way? Yeah, no kidding. If you go back to Blood Raven's descriptions, it's kind of uncanny. Uh, if Euron was um, was also an albino, I, he would look exactly like when we see Blood Raven show up in the uh, Dunkin' Egg stories. He's got the one eye with the eye... Well, Blood Raven doesn't actually wear an eye patch, but he's like faking the one eye thing. Um, his crow's eye is very similar actually to the Blackwood House Blackwood sigil uh, with just an eye at the top instead of the other stuff. Um, he wears black and red, kind of like a Targaryen, although the blue lips and the uh, blue eye are a little bit different. But when you look at, I think it's very uh, informative trying to figure out what happened to Euron. If we look back at Bran's early chapters, when he does meet Bloodraven, when he's trying to tempt him how he shatters Bran's worldview and gets him to give up essentially being the Prince of Winterfell, being a noble the rest of his life to try and be this weird tree wizard that'll save the world. Okay, it works, because Bran, I guess, is receptive, and maybe Bloodraven has gotten better at figuring out how to tempt these um, young prodigies into how to join his side, but it looks very much to a lot of people that Euron is a failed attempt, or his rough draft at how to uh, get his next, the next Three-Eyed Raven, or whatever it is, into the Weirdwoods. I think that's 100% the case. It's, uh, you know, if you think about Bran as as the, the kind of central protagonist of A Song of Ice and Fire, the closest thing there is to a central protagonist of A Song of Ice and Fire, and now he had his big shamanic injury that really kicks off the story for a lot of people when he's thrown from a tall tower. And what does Euron talk about doing? He wants to leap from a tall tower, which, you know, sounds kind of like the thing the villain might do if, if the hero is being thrown against their will and has to accept powers as a burden, as a duty. The villain might be the one one who jumps, who wants that, mm-hmm. who wants that life and, and covets it jealously. That's I think that's how Euron is being framed as this this kind of negative version of Bran. And it does it does fit to me that Bloodraven, from what we know of Bloodraven, it's like, okay, he's got good intentions. I understand where he's coming from, but man, does he go too far all the time. All the time. And make things harder for himself all the time. Accidentally creating a supervillain sounds like exactly the kind of thing he would do. And especially even their tactics. What we know from Blood Raven is how he was the unofficial king of Westeros is essentially the strategy that Euron's running back. He's using spy master shit. He's using, uh, I mean, there's speculation he has a glass candle. He uses magic. He appeals to, um, to those that nobody else does and kind of rules the realm by getting idiots to fight each other for him which is how he essentially kept things going for himself. And you look at, at Euron, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing, except with more drugs, I would say. Slightly more drugs. But yeah, I think you know a lot of this theory that Euron is, is Blood Raven's bad seed, his kind of failed protege or protege gone rogue, uh, comes down to uh, the great scene on A Feast for Crows from Victorian's Chapter the Reaver, which is uh, right after 
Euron has tried to lead everybody to Slaver's Bay, and he got his like his one big like you know failure so far. Like Roderick the Reader kind of talked him down and sassed him, and Euron had to run leave the room. So this is you know the closest Euron gets to reflective is in this moment. I That's think. true. The, cl- the closest he gets to doubting himself, and so he kind of falls back as people both good and ill do on like their source on like their defining moment. Who made me who I am? Why am I doing this? Why do I think I can get away with this? And this is kind of when he. He starts to, 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 to give away his origin story. And uh, do, do you want to do the quote, sir, or should I? I think you should, because I think this is one of your favorite quotes in the books, isn't it? This is true. It's one of my favorites. You For me, this, this gets gets to the core, like the, the villainous impulse that, mm-hmm. that George is defining, the, the evil that cuts across the good in human hearts. Euron stood by the window, drinking from a silver cup. He wore the sable cloak he took from Black Tide, his red leather eye patch, and nothing else. When I was a boy... I dreamt that I could fly, he announced. When I woke, I couldn't, or so the maester said. But what if he lied? And then a Victorian, like, you know, wonders, wonders what he's talking about. Euron turned to face him, his bruised blue lips curled in a half-smile. Perhaps we can fly, all of us. How will we ever know unless we leap from some tall tower? The wind came gusting through the window and stirred his sable cloak. There was something obscene and disturbing about his nakedness. No man ever truly knows what he can do unless he dares to leap. There is the window. Leap. Victorian had no patience for this. His wounded hand was troubling him. What do you want? The world. Firelight glimmered in Euron's eye. His smiling eye. So when I was a boy, I dreamt that I could fly, but then I woke up and I couldn't, and the maester told me that there's no such thing as magic. That sounds like a certain main I've character I've heard that before know, somewhere, yeah. That's the beginning of the story, mm-hmm. but told from the perspective of a villain. I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Interesting that you're saying Branson's not a villain intriguing <laughs> well uh, it, to the extent that Bren is a villain it's, it, it's the tragic fall of someone we know and love Euron is someone who from the get go went yum delicious <laughs> like you know Bran, Bran cried out in fear when he looked at the heart of winter Euron looked at that and went oh pretty that looks <laughs> that looks good oh, he enticing. wanted it to be a mirror and I think that's what happened especially since we we know vaguely from the show, George has said, that Bran will probably end up king of Westeros in some sense. Um, it's interesting seeing that that is also Euron's goal. His stated goal is he wants what we know Bran eventually has. It's like, has has Bloodraven been peddling the same story to different kids throughout history until he found one that stuck with Bran Stark? It's also interesting that he's very... If he was trying with Euron... Well, then when he tells Bran, I was waiting for you for so long, okay, well, then it shows that Bloodraven is not actually omnipotent within the, the Weirwood throne. He is still making mistakes. Even at that level, he's still, you know, reading the shadows wrong as they dance about in the fire. And yeah, it's, it's interesting to consider whether, you know, uh, Bloodraven's protege is wanting to be king of the world. Is that an accident? Or is Bloodraven not just trying to save the world from the others? Is he trying to get a protege of his in charge of Westeros? Because he's still playing kind of the same old game. And Euron might just be a nightmare version of that, his worst possible protege. Bran is our, like, kind of, again, Bran does, you know, some very shady things when it comes to his superpowers, yeah. but there's also still, like, a lot of Arthurian imagery around him. He's noble in a lot of ways, like, oh, I'm going to pay back my vassals for every nut and berry. And Euron's like, how can I squeeze my people dry <laughs> for every ounce of psychic energy? And you see other connections to Bloodraven, as you say, they kind of look similar. You've got the name Crow's Eye, of course, which seems to connect to the eye and, and bird symbolism that hovers around Blood Raven. The third eye thing. It's also interesting that he calls he calls himself the Crow's Eye, but the he's not calling himself the Crow. He's calling himself the Eye of the Crow, which means he thinks that there's something else bigger than him that he's serving. 
which he ends up talking about later where he's like, I want to make a world worthy of him, whoever him is, that kind of thing, that he wants to destroy the world in darkness and replace it with something else. But it, it seems like it's him, kind of, but he also is, I don't know, serving something larger. Yeah, that is a weird slippage in his dialogue. And I think part part of how you can think about it is he's talking about the others. Yeah. Maybe part of how he's talking about it, maybe it's something to do with Valyria. But maybe it is just a poetic way of talking about himself. But yeah, it is interesting. He thinks of himself as, is he the storm or the eye of the storm? And he kind of talks about himself both ways. And again, Euron is on a lot of drugs. A lot of drugs. <laughs> he, a lot of drugs. He might just be slipping between the two. That's true. And uh, you made uh, a point here in the doc. You wanted to talk about the the... Hodor and Robin Greyjoy. Yeah, this is so one of the, you know, uh, the, for the Forsaken is a great chapter for me because it combines like cosmic wild stuff with just really stomach turning intimate stuff. And that combination I think is interesting. And one of the more stomach turning intimate things is when uh, Euron mentions in passing that he killed not only not only Balin, not only uh, the older brother with Grayscale, but also young Robin Greyjoy, Greyjoy, the one surviving child of Quellon and his wife from the mainland. And uh, the way both Aaron and Euron describes him, it seems that he had some sort of mental disability. And Euron does not go into specifics about how Robin died, and neither do neither does Aaron. But what Euron does say is that Robin had a soft head. And given what Bran does to Hodor, that makes me think that that's what Robin was for Euron. His like training wheels in possessing another person. And again, like the contrast, like Bran, you know, possessing Hodor is the darkest thing Bran does, and mm-hmm. it's very dark. But George still menstruated his motivations of he just wants to be strong, you know, he doesn't want to hurt anyone. It's something Bran is blinding himself to his better angels. Euron does not have those better angels to begin with. So him with Robin was just was just trying this shit out. And I think that might have been how the poor kid died is Euron just ramped up this these psych experiments until it killed the kid. Keep taking his body. And it's interesting when you note that Euron's practice is to cut out the tongues of all of his followers. If he's like Bran and he's a human skin changer... Uh, we actually see from the, um, what is it, the, um, oh God, what's his name? What's the a song, the Dance with Dragons prologue character? Oh, Varamir. Varamir Sixkins. When he tries to take over the body of Thistle, um, she bites her tongue out to stop him from doing it. And the pain is actually what kicks Varamir back out of her body. Is Euron essentially having a crew of mutes with no tongues, essentially in a, in a dark mirror of that idea where... He has essentially a bunch of bodies, almost like, I can't believe I'm going to make this reference, but Meat House Man, where uh, George's old story about a, um, uh, essentially a psychic enhanced by technology, aka Shade of the Evening seems to be a psychic stimulant in the same kind of way, where he just essentially uses human puppets around him to do his bidding. That's a great connection, and Varamir has a lot of parallels to Euron in terms of both having their third eyes open, and if we're right about Euron being a rogue protege of Blood Raven or a failed one or someone who turned his back on him, that's exactly what happened to Varamir. He turned his back on his mentor, Hagon, and ate his heart and began breaking all the rules, all the abomination rules. Mm-hmm. Varamir grew up in kind of a, a rough-and-tumble warrior culture that's not too dissimilar from the Ironborn. You know, you could see a similar story being told there. And I, you know, I've often thought about like if you know what Euron is going to be like at the end is what Varamir, as we see in that prologue, still really dangerous, still trying to attack people, but also really just kind of pathetic mm-hmm. and worried that like, oh god, all that evil shit I did is catching up to me. Like when when Sideshow Bob gets arrested in The Simpsons, and goes, oh right, all that stuff I did. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's Varamir at the end, and I feel like that's going to be Euron Euron at the end too. It's just like this 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 utter collapse of this once super powered guy. But yeah, it's I think that's that 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 is the comparison. It's this. 
this kind of evil growing up within this this political culture and st- starting with the family first, just as Varamir did. Varamir like ate one of his brothers. It's implied. Yeah, as a, and, and, as a and Euron killed his. It's also interesting to note that um, there are moments where Euron's Eldritch Apocalypse crow's eye slips, and it's specifically after taking the Shield Islands, where he tries to get everybody to get up and go. We're gonna go get Tenerys. We're gonna go to Valyria. We're gonna get the dragons, and then Roderick Harlaw says like. I don't think you've done any of that. And Euron essentially goes like, shit. And essentially storms off. Because he's not used to dealing with people. He's used to dealing with, yeah. I mean, people who can like, you know, talk back and be independent human beings. He's used to dealing with people who he has enslaved and tortured. You know, he's, he's, he's barely comfortable having to campaign in a feast for crows, <laughs> let alone like talk to other people. And it's very interesting that, you know, the person who doubts Euron's story is called the reader yes (laughs) because he's supposed to be standing in for us going hmm i'm not so sure what's going on here that's not to say that euron is a complete fraud and he's not dangerous but that we should be very skeptical of euron's image of himself and his claims euron is is super dangerous super powerful but he's not a god he's you know he's he's a he's a lunatic who was given way too much power it's very true um and then let's see here we talked about robin Greyjoy. um the two eyes thing, that's sort of a George's thing where he likes to use that to mm. mark characters who are uh, between worlds where Tyrion has two different eyes and he struggles between being well, the dragon world and the real world being a Lannister and being a dwarf. Um, you can see that with Euron uh, putting his black eye always in darkness, maybe alluding to the fact that he sees another world all the time, which we know he does because he's always on drugs. But it could be literal. He could literally see the world of dreams through one eye and the real world through the other, which would be very confusing, which would explain why he's such a nutcase. Yeah, that's, that, and that, that fits with so much like, you know, kind of shamanic history and oral traditions about how power works and about seeing other worlds. But yeah, like, again, like a, a photo filter overlaid over everything. So it's just driving him nuts. I think that, that I think that does fit with how kind of George tends to write these, these magical phenomena as, as this, these kind of psychic burdens that frail, you know, mm-hmm. flawed human beings really can't handle. And Euron has just been kind of almost raised on it. He's just been, been been supping on this the whole time. It's also very common with Lovecraft characters, where the closer they sure. get to the, the outer gods and the worlds of chaos, the more their minds break down, to the point that they mm-hmm. struggle to uh, separate reality from fiction, or the uh, the other world. There's actually, I, I forget the name of it, but there's a, specific, there's a particular story where one character essentially um, gets hooked on hard drugs, and his life collapses around him, and he thinks he's talking to his friend who shows him the way all the time. But it turns out to oh, be Oh, that himself. sounds familiar. I think I read that one, too. I don't remember what it's called, but yeah, I vaguely remember that he, one. He hallucin- and yeah, that is the vibe. He hallucinates mm-hmm. a younger version of him, idealized version of himself as his own guide to the world of the outer gods. And it's like, that seems how Euron probably sees himself. There's probably the truth of the um, decaying just morally bankrupt person that's whose life is destroying around him in the idealized version of the crow's eye that he also sees himself as. Absolutely right. And that's why he doesn't like it when Roderick calls him out because he's like, how dare you challenge me? I have a crown of psychic fire on my head. <laughs> Can't you see that? No, no one can see that except you. <laughs> Hang on, let me give everybody shade the evening. You all catch up. It all makes exactly. sense. That's why he tries to give it to his brothers. It's like you can't even understand what I'm talking about until you process this stuff. That's why I love that Euron Victorian dialogue is they're barely even communicating because he's practically a different species at this point given what he's put himself through while still being the flawed, broken, ridiculous person that he's always been. He's, he's you know, kind of reaching for something higher, but 
he's always got these forces pulling him down to earth. Definitely. And there's uh, one question, just to sort of a break in what we're talking about. And this is something I came across. I think people have um, asked it too. Do you think Euron is actually dead? Is he a resurrected white at this point? Because there's an awful lot of language and and uh, symbolism and imagery around him that suggests that maybe he is. I mean, the blue lips is a classic mm-hmm. sign of uh, someone that has died and come back. And you, we know that this is a thing. Like someone like um, Beric Dondarrion comes back with a skewed uh, view of reality where he starts seeing things in a very different way. Uh, it's assumed John, it will happen the same to Jon Snow when he comes back. But he also talks about things that people don't sur- don't come back from. He says he's walked in a shy in Valyria. He said he's been in the ruins. He came back with Valyrian steel um, armor. Maybe he stole it from somebody around the, um, the Valyrian daughters, but maybe he actually did it. And it's all these weird things where his crew of mutes are very similar to an army of whites in the sense that the way the others use them, where it's the mm-hmm. one psychic center with his little tentacles that go out and do his bidding for him. It seems like it maybe he, if he's been experimenting with magic and like particularly in, um, when people talk about him, they call him like a corpse. What is it? A corpse with a gray smile and a sea of blood or when um, the ghost of Highheart sees him, describes him as a drowned crow on the shoulder of a man with no face. Well, a drowned crow is a dead crow. Is that just Ironborn, or has Euron actually been to the Void and back, and maybe that's something that has been influencing him so much? That's an excellent question. I mean, you think about Euron in relation to the Undying, talking about Shade of the Evening, and they, they got that blue, corrupt heart that seems undead, but beating at the center of their little hive mind, and is Euron along the same lines? I think if he's not undead yet, I think he will be, mm-hmm. and I think I'll talk a little more about that when we get to, like, I think where he's going and what his role in, in the story is supposed to be, but I do think, yeah, his, his, his blue lips definitely speak in that direction. I do think Euron actively wants to be undead, and I think that is someone, something that separates him from, like, the Valyrians, who I, I think accidentally ended up with a doom on their hands, and I don't <laughs> think we're trying to create a volcano-covered yeah. wasteland, and I think that's what Euron is actively after. And I think that's he's like the next step in that process. He's 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 going for that. I don't think he's quite there yet. Maybe he won't get there, but I think he is trying for that. Like he wants to be the undying of Karth, but he wants to be a better version of them. Well, because all they do is sit there. Like yeah. that's the great joke of the undying of the Karth is that the doors of perception are open to them, and they're just sitting around getting high instead of. And Euron must just look at that <laughs> and go, "What a joke! You have like the entire world inside your third eye. Go do stuff with it." And he's going around doing stuff with it. Unfortunately. That's true. And there's also the, the weird thing when, when he comes back, everyone is upset. We were talking about this uh, before the stream started. Uh, if you're listening to this back, you're probably not going to see it. But we were talking about how everyone's upset that Euron is somehow gotten handsomer and looks the same age or even younger when he comes back. Which Very eerie. Very mm-hmm. eerie. Reminds you of maybe a glamour, but it also reminds you of somebody that like Beric, who basically no, no longer biologically functions anymore, where he's on a different level. There's some, Absolutely right. Something about and, fire and, whites. And Bar- for, of course, for Beric, that's the heroic noble burden that he finally gives up. But for Euron, like that's what he's in it for, and that just that just makes it such a such a different situation. Exactly. And in a world where necromancy exists, I mean, surely people would use it for like the others do, but clearly mm-hmm. you can do it on command if you know the right way to do it. I would not put it past Euron to be somebody that said. Um, I'm going to die and I want you to bring me back and like experimented with other people first to make sure it worked and then did it to himself on purpose. 
Oh, yeah, I can imagine him just, like, in, like, a giant black pyramid in a shy or even just in the mm-hmm. hole of the silence doing that for sure. I mean, you know, we, we Makuro might have done a version of that to Victarion, and if Euron could have done that directly to Victarion, he probably would have. <laughs> if he wanted to. And undead Victarion. God, that's going to be terrifying. That guy is such a nightmare. Um, There's I, barely a difference. That's the great joke with Victarion. Like, he has a firearm now, but he might be undead, and his personality is the same. <laughs> He's the same. It was barely there to begin with. Why would it change? It's just now his hand smokes. That's basically it. It's like now he's ten percent cooler. Actually, he might be able to survive now blowing the horn of a Dragonbinder. Huzzah! He'd be very pleased. Oh my! He actually wants to. It's so weird. I was reading that back. I was like, Victorian, you saw it kill somebody. And he's like, I need to blow this. He's got this weird sexual fixation on it because that'll show Euron again. It's a Stannis thing. Like he can't <laughs> help it. He has to do it. And then um. So we're, we're going to talk about the Madry stuff a little bit more, but one thing we wanted to get back to is we talked about it earlier, Euron's uh, strategy of gaining power. We talked about with Quellon and how it seems likely that he pushed Quellon into the war and then maybe helped him on his way to his death in order to remove uh, somebody that he saw as... Um, it, he probably saw him as a tormentor um, of his personality, where he was never... Been, anyway, we talked about that earlier. But um, I think... The biggest example is the Greyjoy Rebellion, and Balon's Rebellion in particular. So it starts off, the opening salvo is Euron comes up with this great plan. He says, Balon, Robert Baratheon is a usurper. There's a lot of Targaryen loyalists out there. I bet he won't have all the support. We should strike first. And it's like, where are we going to strike? He's like, Lannisport. Go to Lannisport, sack it, take Tywin's family, or whoever's there, burn the ships, the western, all the western coast will be done. Nobody will come and get us, despite the fact the red wines exist, and that's a terrible plan. They go for it. Balon says yes, and says Victorian, the, the, uh, the, he's the Admiral of the Iron Fleet, I guess that's his title? Lord Captain, I think. Lord Captain. What he, yeah. Victorian does what he does. He shows up with his axe. He sacks Lannisport. They take gold. They burn everything, go back. The war is on. The Euron disappears. No more did he have any role in any of the war. Oh, boy. (laughs) Even the sack of um, Pike by Robert Baratheon, the battles afterwards, the sea battles, Euron has disappeared. He has effectively put his two biggest rivals, Victorian and Balon, on a suicidal war against the Iron Throne, and he also started it in a way that ensured Tywin Lannister will not be sitting it out because he attacked Lannisport. So everyone on the western coast is coming for Balon, and Euron is essentially like stroking his, his goatee, going, Mwahaha, perfect, we're going to lose, and all my family's fucked, but I'm going to avoid it. And it's just such a masterstroke for how somebody in his position would try and gain power and how he does it later. You can already see the seeds being sown for how he takes over in the Feast for Crows, where he really has no interest in the old way or Ironborn ideology, but that's kind of an advantage because it allows him to see its weaknesses and its structures in a more unclouded way than, like, Victarion or Aaron, both of whom just walk into a Feast for Crows like, everything will go as we expect, everyone thinks exactly as we do and will vote for us, and then it just doesn't happen at all. <laughs> Euron can stand outside it and see it a little more effectively, and so he can manipulate it a little more effectively, and he knows how the Ironborn will function within the whole of Westeros. He, you know, he, it's, you know if you were going to take over the world, the Ironborn wouldn't be who you start with, 
but they're who Euron has, so he knows how to, he has to know how to use their strengths and weaknesses effectively. So much of the Greyjoy rebellion from Euron's perspective is, as you were saying, about his p- powers from Bloodraven. It's like a rough draft. It's like a you know I'm going to try things out here, like like the way the uh, the World War powers of World War II treat, treated the Spanish Civil War is like a laboratory. Like this is just a an appetizer for the real fight we're going to have later. Mm-hmm. And it works out completely perfectly. Balon, the the guy who's bringing back the old way, the um, the perfect child of the Greyjoy family with Quillon dead, he loses. He loses his crown. He's forced to submit. Most of his sons die, which, again, talking about Euron, you have to wonder how many of them died in battle, how many of them were ordered or put somewhere by Euron or manipulated there in a way that they would not survive. Effectively, you're moving the obstacles to him gaining the Seastone chair at some point. Um, Victorian also loses. That's important. Victorian gets a huge loss at the hands of Stannis in the um, the, the uh, sea battle. So all of Euron's rivals for the leadership of the, of the Greyjoy family in the Iron Islands are essentially embarrassed at the end of the Greyjoy Rebellion, but not Euron, because he had the great plan to sack Lannisport, the one good part of the war. He keeps himself just out and gets gets the prize he wants and then slips away, and he'll do the same thing in the main <clears throat> series as he, he leaves the Shield Islands with people that are, are supporters of his rivals and traps them there for when, for when you know, shining hero and my boyfriend, Garland Terrell, shows up <laughs> to, to kick them off those rocks. Euron will be elsewhere. Euron will, will be in the Old Town area instead. I also thought this had particular shades of Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons when he's at his darkest after killing Tywin. Aha, killing his mm. father. What do you know? I think I think those are two. These are two parallel characters. Tyrion's not quite to where Euron is, but I think the way they see the world and the um, the the hurt they feel inside because of it is probably somewhere similar. Especially because Tyrion also has weird dreams and that kind of thing. But anyway, in sure. in A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion meets a young Griff, surmises that he thinks he's Rhaegar Targaryen's son, and then he sends him on a suicidal. Uh, path towards Westeros. He manipulates him, he insults him, he implies that he's just a good little boy following along with Old Griff, a.k.a. John Connington. If you're the blood of the dragon, what do you need them for? What do you need Daenerys for? You're the real thing, aren't you? Griff's like, well, yeah, I'm 15. Of course I am. I'm great. This is going to be awesome. And so Griff abandons the plan that uh, Varys and um, Illyrio have, and uh, John Connington have set out for him and invades early, takes the Golden Company and goes. And you can see that very clearly with Balon's rebellion, where it sounds like a good idea. It makes sense. He's he's playing on the insecurities of Griff in order to get him sort of out of the way, but also Tyrion sort of views it as like, oh good, this will be fun to watch as this kid and all of his armies die on the east coast of Westeros. It's like that kind of sociopathic behavior and lack of respect or even... Like, even viewing other people as other people. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, of course, what is, uh, who does Tyrion want to meet in a dance with dragons? Who is he heading towards? Danny. Yeah. And who does, who does Euron really want to get in contact with? Danny. Because Danny. she's this ultimate source of power and legitimacy. And both Tyrion and Euron, in different ways, are like Targaryen cosplayers in some way. They want the real deal. They want it on their side. Of course, with Tyrion, again, it's a, it's a tragic structure. You see, like, oh... The person who wanted to belong to his family realized he never was going to and broke bad and hard. Like, <laughs> I can see the, you know, that's that's an emotional character arc. With, with, with Euron, it's 
from the get-go, how can I exploit my family's weaknesses against themselves? How can I how can I try things out on them and use them later? What 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 good can I make of them? The way he talks about his bastard sons is as if they're not even people. There are no people. There's only Euron, apparently. Feed Euron or be eaten. Yep, that's the rule. And maybe, you know, you could see Tyrion eventually Tyrion eventually descending to that mindset, but he'd have to get there. Whereas for Euron, that's the constant and that's everything else just kind of orbits around that. Exactly. Starting it goes point. deeper from there. Mm-hmm. He's like, the Great Joy Rebellion was like 10 years ago. That's where Huron was 10 years ago. Where is he exactly. now? It's, it, it really paints a bleak, bleak picture of where Tyrion might go by the end of the story. Although it probably won't because the story doesn't last that long. It's only like a year or two at this point. Um, and then we get to, I think the definitive moment in Euron's life is his exile from the Iron Islands. And it's such a weird circumstance that it ends up that way. Because what ends up happening is the stories change depending on apparently who you're asking within the story. But he rapes or he seduces the salt wife of Victorian Greyjoy, his favorite one. And apparently this is a big thing for Victorian and all and um, the uh, the Ironborn culture that it cannot be you cannot this cannot be left alone. Taking another man's salt wife is apparently a great sin. So Victorian is going to want to kill him, but he can't. Because he knows Victorian enough of that, he will have to bring it to Balon. And Kinslaying is so abhorrent on the Iron Islands that Euron will not actually be punished for this. At least not in the way that uh, Victorian wants to, basically. He would, he would like to chop off Euron's head and throw him into the sea. So he, the whole case gets brought before Balon. And it's also interesting to note that it's um, Euron's supporters, they call them the freaks and fools of the Iron Islands. And that is a big problem between him and Balon. Balon hates him at this point. He's courting the underbelly. He's courting the people that Balon does not like or want. So he's, he's creating conflict with both of his brothers. And what ends up happening is Balon decides the worst thing I can do is you, I can exile from the Iron Islands until my death. By the way, don't say until death, until your death. It's Euron Greyjoy. Say until forever. <laughs> until beyond, right, until yeah. the infinite. But it's true. I mean, Euron is in part a comic book villain. Plenty of people have compared him to the Joker in the chat. And look at, you know, who tends to back up those guys? Mm-hmm. It, tends to, it tends to be the freaks and the fools in the underbelly who, who, who follow those guys into battle. And yeah, Euron's, the little trap Euron lays for Victorian here is so important because it establishes a couple things. One, Euron has learned how to use the old way against his own people. Mm-hmm. He has learned that he can, he can use the old way to manipulate them into positions that they do not want to be in and they'll ultimately have no one to blame uh, for it but themselves. And he does the same thing on a large scale with the King's Booth. What's also going on here is that I think, yeah, like you say, Euron is taking advantage of, of Balin's mercy in a way, and that's just so callous. And, you know, he... um. Uh, it's just like he, he knows that he knows that that that, that Victorian will has, has only the one voice in his head, the the one culture, and mm-hmm. and Euron will 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 just, will just take full advantage of that, and you know that 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 Euron will always use sexual violence as this tool against other people. He'll do this, do do the same thing in the Forsaken, and I think that's important to have in a villain because he can't just wash over you. He has to get you to follow your own worst instincts. You know what I mean? Yeah. He has to he has to like make Victorian complicit in the same way that in the Forsaken he wants to make Dampier complicit. He is always the devil on every character's shoulder, whispering yep, the yep. worst things, encouraging their worst behaviors. And it's interesting to note that so Balon then exiles Euron. But it's kind of like John at the end of uh, Game of Thrones, where it's exactly mm. what Euron wants. Like 
Exiling John so the Knights watch him beyond the walls, great. That's where he wants to be. Euron does not want to be on the islands. Or he doesn't want to be on the islands while Balon is king. So he is freed, mm. not from not only from Balon, but the Iron Throne. He is on his own, finally, and nobody can touch him. The The Iron Fleet can, can't command him, Balon can't command him, and he goes off and makes his name across the world, reaving and pirating, and really learning how to... Um, I guess, be his own hype man. When we see him come back, this is all, all this time is him essentially learning those skills that let him take over the Ironborn because it's noted, Euron, we have never seen Euron in a fight. We don't, I don't even know if he can swing a sword. He wins, he takes cities and he takes pirate and ships and merchant ships by fear alone. When they see the silence with its black sails and its red hull and they see the crew of mutes and they see the crow's eye, people instantly surrender because he makes sure they know who he is and what he will do with extreme violence if they catch him. Which makes him an exaggerated version of characters like Tywin and Stannis who think they can only rule through fear. Euron is just that ramped up to 11. And as he says, they they all pray to me, no matter what other gods they pray to. They may have prayed to horse gods or mountain gods or gods of empty air, but when they see my sails, they're praying to me. And that again leads back to what he said right after he killed his first brother. And what he said about raping his other younger brothers is that the, if this is so awful, why is no one stopping me? Mm. Why is the world allowing me to exist? Why does the world seem to work this way? Why do I seem more like an embodiment of the world system than an exception to them? Why do I fit right in? Like, that's the hideous <laughs> Euron question. Why is he being why rewarded? Am I, why am I being rewarded? And that's, that's, the, that's how George uses him as a vessel for critique, not just for the Ironborn, but for all of these systems. Because Euron has that big speech when he gets back. Yeah, I've seen through every one of these religions, and none of them have an answer for me. None of them save their people from me. It doesn't matter how many children whose coats cuts the throats they cut for the weirwoods. I can do whatever I want anyway. So why are you bothering? You may as well pray to me. Yeah. Cut out the middleman. You're going to end up praying to me anyway. <laughs> Emperor Euron. It's actually, uh, I was thinking as you were talking, this is a show-only scene. It's when Tyrion and Jaime are in the um, the dungeon before the, um, before the trial by combat. And they're talking about uh, their brother or their cousin Orson, and the smashing of the Beatles, and they get down to it, and Tyrion asks, like, what is it all about? Why does this happen? And Jamie has no idea. Well, the answer is Euron. Euron is answering sure. that question. The, the hopelessness and the cruelty of nature in the world is really what he's wearing. And it's... The silence. Yeah, the silence. The silence of the void. That's what he represents. And it's really brutal. <laughs> God damn him. Um, so... Uh, one, there's another uh, question I put in here. Have you ever heard of the Urifon Nightwalker theory? This is this is an interesting possibility. So, you know, we brought up Shade of the Evening and Passing in the Warlocks, and Karth does seem like a Euron kind of place, honestly, mm. being you know, all trippy and full of weird details and kind of frightening, but also kind of silly. Uh, and it's it's there there is this this character named Urathon uh, Nightwalker mentioned in Danny's last chapter in Karth. Zerozo and Daxos is listing all these weird things that ha- seem to be happening in the city because of her and her dragons, and among them are that glass candles are burning in Urathon Nightwalker's house. Mm-hmm. And Urathon is of course sounds like an Ironborn name, and it's very specifically the name of one of the Ironborn kings who was known for being brutal at a king's moot and taking over and killing his his, his relatives. And, you know, Nightwalker, ooh, that sounds like someone who might have connections like the Dream World and Blood Raven's world, the world of the Third Eye. So I do like the theory that that's a pseudonym for Euron. I don't know if George intended it to be at the time. Euron is introduced, mentioned in passing in A Clash of Kings, the book in which Urathon comes up, but he's not introduced. 
But if so, then he might have a connection to a glass candle. Wouldn't that be interesting? It would certainly explain why he seems to be winning all the time. Having essentially mm. a mm -hmm. spy, being able to spy on everybody anywhere ahead of time. Like, even the timing. He shows up on the Iron Islands a day after Balon's death. You hire a faceless man, I, there's no cell phones. How are you working <laughs> this out ahead true. of time? Is he just like sitting offshore and sent him in? It's like, you'll get him today, right? Absolutely. He's got a really long telescope and he's looking, yeah. and we're good, boys. I'm going in. But yeah, that's a great that's a great point. A glass candle, you know, pierces shadow and earth and flesh and all that good stuff. Season it would definitely dreams. allow him. Exactly. It, 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 if anything, it would sync up with the Blood Raven stuff. It, that does make perfect sense. And the earth on um, the earth on part uh, makes total sense. Earth on the fourth good brother. He came to right. the Iron Throne. I mean, came to the uh, I'm sorry, the Sea Stone Chair. Essentially, by calling a king's moot known as Bad Brother, and essentially what happened was, let's see here. First act, your uh, Urathon did upon being king of the Iron Islands was kill the late king's sons, and went from good brother to bad brother, and it's essentially sounds about right. And the end of his reign is Torgon the Latecomer, which many have pointed out is a probably a direct reference to Theon Greyjoy if he ends up coming back to the. Um, the Iron Islands, as Torgon the Latecomer was had a claim to the uh, Seastone Chair during this, but he was off reaving. Ergon called it without him, and it was that technicality that allowed Torgon to claim it after Urathon's uh, brutal reign ended when he was killed by his own captains. Yeah, that's a great connection to the history, and Torgon comes up with Roderick and Asha and Feast and Dance. They're thinking about Theon for that role. As Roderick himself says, time is a wheel, and they're kind of like deliberately trying to make that, that happen. It seems um, it'd be interesting if Euron knows that history and then named himself after that character anyway. It's like, by the way, this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. This is who I am in Ironborn history. Yeah, that fits. <laughs> that fits him very well. He loves playing the villain. And it's funny. It's such an in-joke, too. If he actually mm -hmm. named himself Urvon Nightwalker in Karth, nobody would know it. Nobody. Yeah, that's just for him. He's just like, <laughs> aren't I clever? He says in the mirror as someone screams in the background. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then we get to um, kind of where he starts to enter the story back again. We have the death of Balon and the crowning of himself. Um, so it starts off, he hires a faceless man, basically. Um, it's Most people think he paid with a dragon egg. Who knows what he actually paid with? It's noted that Euron does not keep any loot he keeps her, that he gets uh, from his raiding. He gives it all to his supporters. So it's very likely that if anybody could pay the price for Balon Greyjoy's death, just in coin, it would probably be Euron Greyjoy because he would not care about giving up the money. He might sack cities in order to earn enough specifically to do it. For sure. There's the theory that he may have traded a dragon egg to do it. The dragon egg he says he threw it into the sea. But yeah, it was confirmed in the Forsaken, of course, that Euron had Balon killed. I think it was pretty obvious already. Euron didn't even try to hide it. When you show up the next day, you're not trying to hide what you did. And that, again, is part of Euron's point. Yeah, look how brazen this is. And you can't stop me. What does that say about your beloved institutions, Ironborn? <laughs> that, that I can so easily hijack them like this. I mean, it's kind of like Littlefinger, except that Littlefinger isn't quite as brazen because he doesn't want everyone to figure it out. Euron doesn't care if you figure it out because he feels like he can stop you anyway. And he also specifically positions himself expertly in Ironborn mm -hmm. culture. When the King's Mood is called, Asha Greyjoy um, presents herself as the, the, the Greenlander faction. She's trying Quillon's reforms again. Like, listen, Balon sucked. 
Reaving sucks. We need to go back to Quell what Quellon thought, essentially. I don't know if she actually calls him out, but it's the same idea. Victorian says, no, we're just going to roll back Balon, except I'm better than Balon because reasons. For reasons. But yeah, it's, it, and they, they make you have this perfect opening for Euron because Asha's critique of the old way is largely correct, but the problem she runs into is the same problem I was saying earlier about Quellon is... That doesn't just get rid of the old way. The old way has this tremendous cultural support, and the grievances run strong. Like with the uh, the Blackfire Rebellion, Daron II was objectively correct to get Dorn into the realm and to try to settle that peacefully. But that doesn't just remove all the anger built up. You know no. what does Maester Aemon say? We're we're built for love. That is our glory. That is our tragedy. And the same thing the same thing goes on here. You can't just get rid of the old way by pointing out that it's terrible because that gets people to. You have to get people to admit, oh, we've been wrong about our worldview and everything all lives. That's very difficult to get anyone to do. And Asha doesn't quite pull it off. And Victarion, you know, he's comforting. But also, all I'll give you is more of what you got from Balin, is what he says. And what Balin gave them is nothing, transparently, <laughs> twice. So that just leaves the door open for Euron to say, oh, you can succeed on the old ways promises. You just got to do it more. You just got to be more like me, you know. And he, <laughs> he uses his outsider status to his advantage because he says, yeah, I've been around everywhere killing everyone. Isn't that what we're trying to do? Isn't that who we're trying to be? Maybe I'm the only one who's actually pulled it off. And he, he clearly doesn't care about them. Like he says, surely that is worth a driftwood crown at the king's moot, which is like the most mocking thing he could possibly say. He immediately replaces it with an iron crown in the Forsaken because fuck a driftwood crown. Who needs that? <laughs> but it, it, people don't seem to hear it because he's, he's telling them what they want to hear, that they don't have to make any changes with themselves. That all their problems can be solved by indulging more in their instincts. And that is a, that's a politically potent message, unfortunately. It also, um, Asha and Quellon's message, effectively, is threatening to dispossess the nobles, essentially, of Ironborn culture. Because they've made their mm -hmm. bones on reaving, on being captains, on being the best fighters. And if you're making, true. You're making your society now based around prosperity, and intelligence, and working with people, those guys are ill-suited to that. They are ill-suited to Greenland culture. You are not going to convince you're on goddamn Greyjoy that he's going to go run a farm. That's true. It's a good point. It's not just a cultural shift. It's an economic shift. And again, I'm much more with Asha than any of her uncles, but I don't think she has fully thought through what a transformation that would be. And of course not, because she was just on board with the old way like months ago. Yeah. <laughs> she was fighting Balin's war. She's only just realized this. So of course she's like taking baby steps on how to be a reformist politician. I think you can see in Feast and Dance, she's starting to think more critically about some things. Mm -hmm. If and when Asha gets back to the islands, I think she'll be a more successful politician. But in the moment, Euron just takes full advantage of it. And he's he's able to do so so effectively, of course, because he's he's wearing that all-important eye patch. You know, he's saying, look at me, I'm a perfect pirate. I'm with you. I'm, I'm conveniently covering up <laughs> the, the dream world eye, the crow's eye, the eye that doesn't see you, the eye that sees stuff like Valyria and the others. And he spends a Feast for Crows wearing that disguise as long as he can because he wants the Ironborn for their fleet. He wants them, you know, to help him get Danny, to help him take those first few steps towards godhood. But, you know, that's, that's not really what he's in this for. And I think only, only Aaron seems to realize it. No, Aaron is rightfully terrified of him, which we see in the Forsaken. He, he sees it as a real personal failure. But again, like, like mm -hmm. we were talking about with, uh, you said earlier, Euron learning to manipulate old, old way culture, manipulates uh, Victorian. He puts him in a position where, by calling a king's moot, he makes it more godly. He makes it more about the religion of the Ironborn. And there's one thing Victorian will not do. It's go against the will of the Drowned God, which is how he sees the crowning of a king's moot uh, claimant. 
Exactly. Euron, again, he doesn't just railroad over Victorian. He does over Aaron. But Victorian, he wants to make complicit. He wants to use Victorian's instincts against him. And and he uses his weaknesses to send the Dusky Woman along. And it's pretty strongly hinted that the Dusky Woman is working for Euron in some capacity. But Victorian doesn't seem to realize it because Euron has once again so expertly taken advantage of his weaknesses. And that's, I think that's what makes for a good villain like Euron, where every step they take reveals how unprepared everyone was for them. And I think that's a great way of showing how bankrupt the old way was and how like bankrupt characters like Victorian are, is how easily they can be taken advantage of by someone who very clearly does not care. Like, well, yeah, that's how, that's how skin deep your belief system was, buddy. This is how easily it gets hijacked. <laughs> And I think one important part of the King's Moot, um, reading back on it, is, so you have, uh, it's Asha goes first, then Victorian. And, and I, there's mm-hmm. another claimant, right? There's um, there's there's a few that go first. Yeah. Uh, Gilbert Farwin goes first, who's basically like good Euron. He's like hippie Euron. Yeah. He's got the crazy eyes and the big dreams, but they're just like, let's go hang out in Shangri-La and get high. He's just, he's a very sweet man. Bless him. And then you get a couple of Eric Ironmaker, a couple other losers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think I think Victorian goes before Asha, if I recall correctly. Oh, that might be. And then Asha jumps in, Nuncle to interrupt him, and then they start yes. fighting, and then and then Euron comes in with Dragonbinder to, they, to hit clean up. I, the the point I'm looking I'm getting for here is that they essentially all got up there and made their PowerPoint presentations. They got up there and they made they made their points. They were like, "These are the things I will do for you. This is why I will be a good king." Next, playing by the rules. Euron starts. Dragonbinder is blown. And everybody's mind is essentially, they essentially act like they're under a spell at that point, which they very well may be considering it's a Valyrian artifact. Who knows what it really does? Is it influ- Is it just the sound of it? Or is, is it the spectacle? Or is there actually a magic behind it? Who knows? But the important thing is that it's essentially like, after everyone else does their PowerPoint presentation, Euron turns on like the WWD entrance, like Kane or something like that. Like the music drops, the fire goes up. Euron walks in looking like a badass. And he puts on a, like essentially like a rock concert versus the everyone else who is just very nicely making their points. And that's very important to Euron's... Um, why Euron wins, it's not just about the words. It's that he is making a grand gesture that he looks impressive. He looks like a king. He looks like somebody you should follow whereas everyone else is just more of the same even on like um you were talking about his eye patch and the way he dresses it is the appearance that he is making and the visual and audio spectacle is far beyond what anybody else is trying he looks like someone who could make the old way promises come true he looks like that ultimate iron king brought to life which Victorian actually doesn't. He might think he does, but people are looking at it like, no, that didn't work out with Balin. We need someone a little more impressive, so that that's why they end up getting behind Euron. And yeah, the, the way he interrupts the King's Mood is such a great microcosm of how he handles everything. He just interrupts every ongoing narrative with this big blast of sound and horror and nightmare and just takes over. And, you know, whether he does it through zombification or just convincing, that's that's his M.O., and he, it proves uh, a mastery of the political skills at work. It gets everyone to pay attention to him. And like, as you say, he seems much more charismatic, much more impressive, much more someone you want to be with than any of the other candidates. But it's also positioning him outside the political at all because he's coming in with this magical artifact to talk about his wild magical journeys. And it's, 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 he's, he's literally changing the story <laughs> of the King's Boot to become about something else entirely. And I think you can see that in a broad pattern across the story. You have these political fights 
and then these these monsters on the margins. You have the White Walkers, you have the dragons, kind of you know around the edges of crumbling Westeros, ready to take advantage. And Euron, I think, stands in for a lot for a lot of that. Uh, Frank uh, Frank Bum in the chat makes a great reference. He says, "Glass shatters." Euron three sixteen. Yeah, it's like it, it's ex- it's exactly like Stone Cold coming in. He's he is above and beyond what anybody else in Westeros is capable of doing. I almost wonder what George was who George was thinking about when he wrote these scenes, because it really does seem like a charismatic cult leader, somebody going so far beyond what any of these people are used to seeing. The Iron Islands are a dreary, terrible place. They are not exciting. Nothing awesome happens. And then Euron shows up, and he's promising the a world of fantasy to people that live in the worst reality. That's a great way of putting it. He's a, he's a fantasy storyteller, right? He's, he's, a, he's a dream weaver. He talks about the wonderful images and lands beyond and how he can take it all, and can he fulfill his promises? Well, Roderick, the reader, seems to doubt him. And I think that's, yeah, that's a great comparison. And it's, it's you can't get away from those kind of meta comparisons, I think, with Euron, because I think if I had to sum up what the core concept of Euron as a character is, he's smuggling cosmic horror into this high fantasy. That's what, that's what he's about. And that's made explicit in The Forsaken, which, as you were saying earlier, feels like, kind of a piece of horror dropped into the middle of this story. But I think you can find the seeds for that chapter being sown in the published books. When Euron is mentioned prior to his introduction in Clash and Storm, it takes the form of allusions to horrors too grotesque to name. Everyone is afraid and no one is sharing details. That's always the, the pattern with Euron. Even when we get Aaron as a POV, he knows Euron better than anyone, but he can't bring himself to think directly about the horrors inflicted on him by Big Brother. He drowns out the fear with the voice of God, or what he thinks is the voice of God, anyway. In truth, it's his own voice telling him what he wants to hear. And Euron cuts to the heart of that. Euron believes that the gods are lies, and his superpowers entitle him to godhood status in their place. Again, he's an evil version of Bran. And in Euron's drug-induced visions in The Forsaken, Euron impales the gods on the Iron Throne, emerging as a squid-faced monster ruling over a blood-soaked Westeros. Needless to say, this is all very Lovecraftian, not only in the specific trimmy, trippy tentacle imagery, but also the, the tone, the existential bleakness of it all, the skepticism being aimed at organized religion, and the sense that as bad as things are now, worse stuff is lurking just over the horizon. Euron is this thing you can't even look at or speak about or think about directly. He's just there like a splinter in your mind. And George is updating that Lovecraftian style. He's filtering it through the, the psychedelic era of the 60s and 70s that produced him. Euron feels a lot like uh, kind of Thomas Pynchon and Kurt Vonnegut villains from mm-hmm. that era. And also through like the blockbuster era of horror exemplified by Stephen King. Euron also has that kind of feel, like a Randall Flagg type. Very kind of, kind of, kind of slick and throwing off one-liners and big showy magic. And you, even, even in universe, Euron feels that way. It's not just Euron who has visions about him. You have similar visions from Makuro and Melisandre that that posits him as this eye of this Lovecraftian storm. And he appears to be doing something with the Red Wine Fleet in that regard in The Forsaken when he's tying priests to the prows of his ships as he might be gathering power for some kind of ritual and, and who knows what that might produce. And we got the line, it says, uh, he's described as a tall, twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms sailing on a sea of blood. I don't know about you, that definitely sounds like a, a Lovecraft monster, that he is... Uh, that he's almost like, uh, I mentioned it in the intro, but almost like a form of Neolarthotep. Neolarthotep. How do you pronounce it? That... I think you nailed it the first time. But no, 100%. That's the imagery. And I don't, you know, how literal that is, I think, is not quite the point. The point is that that's what Euron's going for. That's mm-hmm. what he wants. We, however successful he is along the way, 
That's the trajectory. That's the thrust. And I think that's interesting in the context of magic and a song of ice and fire, which from the Valyrians to the Relorate Resurrections to Blood Raven in his cave, it's all about shedding mortality and humanity, leaving behind what makes you human in order to become something more. And I think most of the characters who take part in that have some humanity, something relatable that they are then giving up. But for Euron, Euron is the logical dead end of that process when it's <laughs> all gone, when you've grasped a star overreach and, and, and fall. You know, he, he wants to transcend humanity entirely. So, so in love, that's, and that's, again, the Lovecraft theme, the prying man calling to horrors just beyond life's edge. Euron is someone who, who knows the kind of, kind of seething, festering realities that lurk beyond the everyday, and he wants more of that. He wants to take part in it and be part of it. You, it's, it's a very... Um a George way of trying to do Lovecraftian horror. Cause um, mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, people probably saw on Twitter and stuff. And I've mentioned that I read every one of Lovecraft stories and quite a lot of them are just about the horror part where it's like, you saw a weird tentacle thing and it drove somebody insane, or there's some weird dreams that we explored and that's the whole story. But it's less about if somebody actually was having these visions, if somebody was really connecting to another dimension of power and magic, they wouldn't just be, at some point, somebody wouldn't just be a guy sitting in his library reading the Necronomicon being like, oh, wow, that's kind of weird. And then, like, weird things start happening and they end up in an asylum. At some point, somebody, like, uh, would follow the crawling chaos and try to introduce that into the real world. But you can't just, like, open a gate to beyond and let yogg uh, Sagoth through or awake Cthulhu. Y- you have to still function in the real world. And you kind of see that with Euron, where he is these things. He is explicitly trying to bring about the end of the society that he lives in, the cultures he lives in, and remake it into a new one. That And he claims that it is something beyond, that he's going to pull something through the gates of reality. And he will be its herald or its god, or they will merge something weird like that. Who knows what he really thinks on his drug trips. But it's also like the others in the sense that the others are an eldritch whore. They are they're necromancers, they are ice demons, they exist on a different plane of reality, and they also wear armor and they have swords, and they duel Waymar Royce. And they essentially have this weird strategy, well not weird, but a very smart strategy, where they are pressuring the wildlings to have them attack the Night's Watch, basically. They are slowly pushing them south, which Mance ends up, um, he unites them and tries to take down the Night's Watch, which is kind of what the others want. They want the Night's Watch done. They want humans fighting so they can come in and pick up the pieces, kind of what Euron did with uh, with Balon and Quellon Victorian. It's the same kind of idea where they, they are Eldritch Horrors, they are magical, they are beyond, but they still have to live in the real world. I think that's a great point. Something we've been talking about in the Nauticast and Clash of Kings specifically is about how the political and magical worlds intertwine. And that's really important because that's what makes the magic feel grounded and real and important. Sorta said how much he doesn't like it when there's stories that just like wizards can vanish armies mm-hmm. with a snap of the fingers. Because then why would you raise an army? So you have to construct magic in a way that it, it intersects and interweaves with, with the world. And I think George does a great job of that. You see that with Melisandre and Stannis. You see that with Beric Dondarrion being both a, a miracle revenant and also just, you know, a good old-fashioned knight on behalf of the people. And you see it with Euron here. I don't think he would be interesting if he just came in and cast an obvious spell over Westeros and started killing everybody. I think what makes him work is that he takes over politically first. He takes advantage of the culture first. That's what lets him in. That door is open to him. And then once he's inside, he can start, you know, start openly, more explicitly <laughs> messing with the magic. 
but that, he needs the eye patch. He needs the smiling eye. He needs someone to say yes to him. And that's that's what the Ironborn do. He needs an entrance music. He needs to win a Kingsmoot before mm-hmm. he actually has the ability to do these things. And the, He yeah, wins an election. The villain yeah. wins an election. I think that's an important <laughs> statement on George's part. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, he has to win an election before he brings in the end of the world. Huh. Mm-hmm. How ironic. Anyway, um, off, off the political point, I also think it's very interesting when you talk about what Euron is doing is, and this is something that I'm, that makes me wonder about the direction of Euron in the show, but um, we'll get to that in a little bit, is how much of it, is he really a connection to the others? Is Euron, would Euron, he doesn't seem to value other magical things. He seems to sort of spit on them or take them into his own to make them, like he takes the warlocks of Karth and their dream wine or their, um, what is it, the Shade of the Evening, and he takes the Septons, and he takes the Priest of R'hllor, and he's trying to build them, use them to build himself up. Is he really, is he trying to bring about the end of the world through the others? Does Is he like a Craster figure where he thinks he's going to be rewarded for his service? Or is he trying to rival them? Or are they just like, are they two parallel paths of apocalypse? Craster's possible he wants to serve them. I mean, if you think about someone like, like Saruman in Lord of the Rings, right? Who like, you know, thinks he can rival Sauron or do better than Sauron. It might be that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. But maybe Euron honestly thinks he can do to the others what he did to the warlocks. Like, I'm just going to cut off their legs and suck them for power. What? How are they going to stop me? I'm Euron. <laughs> and what he doesn't seem to realize is that, yeah, the others have no interest. Like, at best, you have a craster relationship. At best. That's best. And they're not interested in anything beyond that. So I think Euron might think about the others to that extent. I doubt it goes deeper than that, and I sincerely doubt like the others care about Euron. Like that, you know, that I think is is probably beneath them. Or is it some sort of like almost a revenge fantasy for him? Like, is he trying to help the others because he know they'll hurt Bloodraven? Because he, that seems to be a real sure. complex in his mind. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and that, there's a there's heavy Star Wars echoes because, of course, a lot of this is Joseph Campbell based for brands. <laughs> so naturally, this this turns into a Star Wars kind of thing. But yeah, is is uh, is Darth Vader doing this just to show up Obi Wan? That's definitely a question here. And I think a big part of the Eldritch Apocalypse essay you wrote about is that you have a specific vision that you th- of how you think Euron is going to bring about the end of the world, that he's going to call the, the Deep Ones from the uh, from under the oceans, that he's going to call the Krakens, that he's going to call- raise the world to the ground. It has to do with a there horn. Is- it's, I mean, there are, you know, there's a, there's Kraken stuff starts to pop up in the Song of Ice and Fire. Varus talks about in the Storm of Swords. In Ariane's released Winds chapter, it's coming up. Kraken's rising to the sea for blood going down on the Reach. Those blood sacrifices are being made by Euron's men. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's an, it's, it's entirely out of the question, but I do think Euron is, is generally connected to the, the age of wonder and terror that Lazy Leo talks about mm-hmm. in the prologue to A Feast of Crows. The, the, the bringing of, 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 of strange and, 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 and crazy crazy wild things to Westeros but um you know the it's it's but, uh, as much as I love talking about that stuff with Euron the flip side about talking about Euron is always talking about the show mm-hmm. unfortunately yeah it's uh it's hard to call that Euron it's uh well actually, it is the first that's scene the was, conclusion the first scene where he shows up is Euron Greyjoy from the books that's the bizarre thing. I would love for this to be somehow solved someday, is what on earth they were going for with that introduction, because it's genuinely intimidating and has nothing to do with any other scene he's in for the rest of the show. No. 
Yeah, that guy on the bridge isn't actually far off from Bokiron. It made me hopeful because, look, <laughs> none, none of the apocalyptic cosmic horror elements that make Euron notable in the books were ever going to survive translation to the show. That holds true if you think the show was the best thing ever or a train wreck or somewhere in between. This was never going to fit. Visually, it wouldn't work. Tone-wise, it wouldn't work. Structurally, put in context with scenes about anything else, this would stand out like a sore thumb. It's the same reason Patchface isn't in the show. He works in your mind's eye when you're reading, but if you, if you plopped an actor as a sad, rhyming clown with a tattooed face into season three's Dragonstone sequences, like jingling in the background, you would have an utter disaster on your hands in terms of tone. Mm-hmm. Euron as a character conceived in tribute to the author's formative influences in novels, short stories, pulp comics, not prestige television. I do, I do not think it would work. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, I, th- I, th- I think the show was left with two problems to solve as a result of book Euron not being a viable option. Problem number one is what do you do with his future impact on the story in the books? What Euron is going to get up to, if you're not going to have a character like him in the show, what do you do with that stuff? And I think the show actually managed that pretty well. Like, they're, they're Night King. He's the one who stole a dragon the way Euron mm-hmm. is trying to do. He's the one who brought down the wall, as I think Euron might do, as we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. And he's the one who generally served in the show as kind of like the, the anchor of apocalypse and magic spinning out of control and all that stuff. And I think that works perfectly fine. Just give it all to the others. That works. That makes sense to me. The second problem, though, if you're not going to do Euron the way he is in the books, is what do you do with the Iron Islands? And this is where I think yeah. the show went wrong. Because if you're not going to do Euron right, you just shouldn't do him. Like, people said the guy in the show called Euron had more in common with Victarion. Mm-hmm. Even that I don't think is quite right. Victarion in the books is, is somber and serious. He's funny in context because he doesn't get what's happening around him. Euron in the show feels more like lazy Leo Terrell. Or maybe Dario, Dario. like a, flambo- a flamboyant asshole whose purpose is to be a flamboyant asshole. And that just that just started to grate after a while. I think it grated for people even who weren't familiar with the books or didn't like Euron's character in the books. But it is, yeah, I understand why you weren't going to approach the kind of tone he is in the, something like The Forsaken, which is never going to fly on HBO's Game of Thrones for a mass audience. Mm-hmm. But then just, like, forget about the Iron Islands. <laughs> Like, a lot of your audience will. Just don't do it. They don't even know Asha's name. A lot of them forget her name. It's Just have Theon, and, her, or, and she'll oh, show up. Yara, I'm sorry. Exactly. What's her name? It's, it's, uh, not, it's, um, it, it's an interesting decision that they even decided to put him in, because if it was something from George where they were like, Euron has a big role in the end, but then they didn't do it, then why include him at all? It's one of those things where you could have just cut him. It, like you said, the Night King fills that role. They didn't even, like, if you wanted to, if you wanted to make a summary version of Euron that is something close to the Eldric Apocalypse, Cosmic Horror, hearing the piping of the of the world beyond, you mm-hmm. could make him, a, like, a Craster figure. You could make him explicitly trying to help the others. I mean, it would be different. It would not be, um, it would be more explicit about what he's doing, but it would work that he's working from inside Westeros to help them. But they didn't, would even, be, they didn't even yeah. do that. It would be more streamlined and explicit, but yeah, you have him show up with like a little tinge of blue around his eyes and talking mm-hmm. about weird stuff. You like cut between his scenes and the brand scenes in season six, which were all about exploring the backstory of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think even in season six, like uh, the three-eyed raven says to Bran at one <laughs> point, like you, if you stay too long in those visions, you'll drown. And like at the time I thought, is that Euron set up? What's going on here? Like... Uh, it is It is there. You don't have to do the whole thing. You don't have to do Lovecraft and all the imagery and all the backstory and all the Valyria stuff. But yeah, you could do something real simple. That guy on the bridge in his opening scene, yeah, it could have been a more spooky, streamlined thing. But, you know, instead he ends up, you know, just uh, 
uh, hanging out with Cersei for ends a couple up, seasons. Ends up being like a Jack Sparrow, Dario kind of merge. Which from what Sequel, I... Like sequels Jack Sparrow. Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> four, fourth... Fourth through twelfth Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Jack Sparrow is what that guy ended the up. The one being. coming back from Davy Jones' locker. Okay, mm-hmm. I guess that's mm-hmm. what he is. Um, I believe, Oddly I, enough, exactly right. I heard a story. I think it's that the whole shift from Euron being the cosmic horror character to kind of the Dario figure was Hilo Asbeck's kind of idea that he pitched it to Dan and Dave kind of on the set. They had him writ- written a different way, and apparently sure. he did. It's not that Pilo did a bad job. It's not that he's not an engaging character. He's just Euron B. He's a different person. He has the same name, but not the same personality. And I, it's they they almost should have renamed him like like you did with Yara and Asha. Just make up a new sure. Greyjoy. It's just, it's, yeah. it's a fine character. It works in the story. It just it it rubs people the wrong way because it's so clearly not what they want from the person with that name. Yeah, that change in expectations is, is the problem more than anything else. And it is weird with that first scene. Although, yeah, so if they change stuff on the on the fly, that, that, that does make perfect sense in terms of uh, being the, the, the change there. But, you know, as you said, he's just he's so clearly not your own that it's, it, it is kind of e- easy to neatly divorce him mm-hmm. in a way that it's not for other show to book characters. You're like, oh, what this this is different. This is the same. Who knows how this changed? But for your own, I think you can pretty much put a hard line. Nope. <laughs> That is somebody. That is somebody else. It is uh, Euron J. Greyjoy. Let's call him that. That works for me. He's got a middle name. Um, I, I really do. It, it would have been really good because you remember they did that promo, the one where um, uh, for season seven, I think, where there was everybody was breathing cold and there's ice going through everyone. Cersei breathed it out, right. and then you cut to the Night King's eye. I thought that's where they were going with that. I'm like, oh, so they're gonna somehow introduce that Cersei is being tempted by the others that she's going to try and be like the consort to the dark god and maybe Euron will fit in there as the as, link for that as the yeah. link between them or even maybe he like tries to become one that would be really interesting and it was like that would be interesting wait you went for Dario 2 instead all right instead no yeah true that that that's disappointing like i said though i am i am sympathetic in terms of what they had to work with cuz that is that is some of the most difficult stuff in song of ice and fire to adapt you know, you can look at some of the stuff in, like, Storm of Swords and be like, this is made for TV. This is perfect. This is cinematic. You're on. Not as much. That is that is book stuff. That is comic stuff. That is, like, you know, pulp paperback stuff. It is, it is not, like, award-winning television stuff. No, it's really... The Game of Thrones really explicitly tried to push down the magical stuff. So, okay, if that's your goal, I get it. I, I totally I would have pref- I would have preferred something more along the lines of, um, uh, what is it, Legion? Like Euron is almost like Legion. Yeah, that's a great comparison for sure. Yeah, that would have been more more what I had in mind for sure. Uh, but you know, we're talking about like a, you know Euron's lack of purpose in the show and like what is compared to in the books. So like yeah, we're just part of the problem I think we ha- people have with Euron as a character is he seems like just like a series of scary images. Yeah, just kind of floating on the page a lot of the time, and it's just mm-hmm. like what's the point? What's the structure? Why is he here in the story? And I think Euron fulfills a number of roles that are actually important for a character who was introduced so late in the series. First and foremost, and this is a theory that a lot of people have talked about, including me, there are several strong hints that the horn Sam brought to Old Town is the Horn of Jorman, a.k.a. the Horn of Winter, which could possibly be the key to bringing down the wall. Again, it's somewhat ambiguous. It also could wake giants from the earth. It's, it's mm. said to do a couple different things. But if it is that... Euron is an ideal candidate to blow it. He is in the Old Town area. He is already associated with Sorcerer's Horns. He just needs an ice one to match the fire one of Dragonbinder, and then he's got the complete set. 
He's got the ice blue lips you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. which is interesting to think about because what happened to the guy who blew Dragonbinder at the King's Moot, uh, Kragorn? He got burned and blistered lips, fiery lips. So are those icy lips of Euron a hint that he's going to blow the, the <laughs> He's going to blow the ice? other's horn? Uh, uh. Exactly. Then tr- he, he's going to turn into ice and shatter on the spot. Mm, be mm-hmm. perfect. And, you know, we were talking about Euron being a potential rogue protege of Bloodraven. Well, if Euron's third eye was opened by Bloodraven, that means he knows about the Heart of Winter and the others, because that's the whole, re- whole reason Bloodraven is opening third eyes, is to mm-hmm. let them know what's up there. So look at Euron. He's, he's ice pale. He's got his blue lips. He loves sorcery, skin changing, slavery. He interrupts the political disputes of the Kingsmoot with three horn blasts. What do three horn blasts mean? <gasps> others, as we find yeah. out beyond the wall. So it makes Euron really seem like he's kind of like a, a white walker in training. Like he's he's trying to become one of them, which we got a truncated version of their backstory in season six. Other people, including you, have talked about it at length. That might be the what happened with the White Walkers. Humanity trying to transcend and ending up with this uh, convergence of instruments with the children of the forest. And that's that's the kind of guy Euron is, given his arrogance and his fearlessness, his desire for unlimited godlike power. He's the kind of guy who would welcome the apocalypse instead of trying to prevent it. And that is how he's framed at, at the end of Aaron's visions in the Forsaken, sitting on the Iron Throne as a monster. He's climbed to the top of the fiery ladder by sacrificing all of Westeros. And so, like Craster, is, is the sacrifice to the others? Are they his vessel? Is that is that how Euron intends to, to get all this stuff done? You look at the Forsaken, the opening line seems to frame Euron as an agent of the Long Night. It was always midnight in the belly of the beast. Well, when is it always midnight? during the long night, during when when the others are invading. As I said, he's going into Old Town. Old Town is a place with a lot of weird magical elements in the backstory in the present day, including the High Tower. Euron says he he needs to leap from some tall tower in order to get his magical shenanigans done. When Melisandre has some visions in a dance with dragons of a of a sea, you know, boiling and mm-hmm. bloody in the same way that Aaron sees in the Forsaken, same way Makuro sees elsewhere in Dance. And Melisandre tells John that the, the hardest blow will fall in their war, near the towers by the sea, coming into invasion by something rising from the depths. And being Melisandre, she gets this wrong, <laughs> and she tells John that, oh, yeah. that's Eastwatch, because she thinks to herself, oh, that's what John's going to want to hear, right? Eastwatch. Again, the magical and political forces kind of screwing with each other. But she's, she's, I think she's wrong about that, that the towers by the sea are, are the high towers, literally. By the sea, and that rising from the depths underneath it is Euron. And if that's the hardest blow that's going to fall, maybe that refers to the Horn of Winter and the bringing down the bring down the wall. And that's what Euron's going to be all about. His role is to to blow the Horn of Winter and to let the others in. Someone's got to bring down the wall in some way. Again, in the show, they just gave that directly to the others to bring down the wall. But in the books, uh, maybe that's going to be Euron's role. And I think that's that's a a, a very important role to play in the story, certainly. Um, I, I tend to think that it, once he does that, he's kind of extraneous. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if he does do that, then at that point he can probably be easily killed off because there's no way the others are going to play nicely with him. Is he is he just there to blow a horn? Like, that that seems like for four, four or five books worth of build-up for him and making him seem like this horrible, horrible person, if all he's really going to do is blow a horn, it's it also doesn't match yeah. with, with his ambition. Like. He doesn't just That's true. he doesn't just want the wall to fall. He doesn't just want the others to take over. He wants to be at the center of it. He wants to it's almost like uh this is going to be a weird reference, but uh from Doctor Who there's um near the end of the time war, they sent Rassilon the the Lord President of the of the um time wars at that point has this plan where they're going to unmake reality and make themselves pure consciousness with them at, themselves at the center in order to win the war and that sort of seems like what Euron's trying to do where he's going to destroy everything as long as he's still the only one left that kind of thing oh i agree i think that's his goal for sure i i do think 
you know, the the others certainly aren't looking for friends, but I am I am curious as to, to see how far Euron climbs the fiery ladder and at what point at what point he, he starts to fall back down and again become like Veramir where he's like blaming the gods. These were just the gifts you gave me. I think at some point Euron ends there, mm-hmm. like kind of p- p- pathetic in the corner. But in the meantime, I think he's he's a very useful villain structurally speaking because you know, he brings all of the story's magical elements together and in the darkness binds them. He refuses to respect that whole ice-fire dichotomy that sits at the heart of the series. He crosses it recklessly. He wants to be both a new Valyrian and a new White Walker. Mm. Like, for him, he doesn't see a reason he should have to choose. In that way, that was even talking about him as, a, like, a negative version of Bran. He's also a negative version of Jon. Because yeah. Jon also has—you were talking about them both being in exile. Jon also has ice and fire. And Jon, of course, like, the great kind of tragic irony of his character is that ultimately he doesn't want anything— he still has to choose and still has to do things, but he's like desire is kind of burned out of him. Whereas Euron is just all desire. <laughs> he just wants everything. He wants ice and fire. He absorbs the warlocks, the priests of the seven, his brother's drowned god. Every god to him is equal, equally meaningless, that is. All culture is fuel for the fire. And that makes him very different from, and in my opinion, more dangerous than all the other villains of the series who have very specific political or emotional axes to grind. Euron ramps up the stakes by making it bigger than all of them. He makes Joffrey and Ramsay and Gregor and all those other ones feel like they were just like steps <laughs> leading down to him yeah. because they all have like things, I want daddy to love me or, you know, I have headaches or whatever Gregor's excuse for his, his nonsense is. But like Euron doesn't have any of that. He just, he just wants, he just takes, he just eats. He's, he's just like, he's at the end of the spectrum as far as all these villains are concerned. It's, it's really interesting to seeing how, George started with the biggest villains with the others. That's the intro. And then he instantly goes from the cosmic horror, the the fantasy, the supervillain, back down to somebody like Joffrey or somebody like mm-hmm. Littlefinger or someone like Tywin where they are villains. They are hor- they are horrible, but they are also worldly villains. No nobody's mistaking Tywin Lannister for somebody who's trying to bring about the long night. He's a terrible sure. person. He just wants his family to be remembered forever. He's still working within the structure of his society. Joffrey is much the same, where he's trying to make a point about um, his value versus what Robert thought about him. And seeing cruelty on others is mm-hmm. kind of a way of um, raising his own self-worth and reacting to it, which is weird and bizarre, but that's how his mind works. Same for Ramsay, where he's not trying to eliminate the north he's trying to replace Roos. he's trying to replace the starks with himself to fill the void in his life euron is much is like the the far far end like all of them wrapped together into one person and you're like slowly getting your way back to the others like what is their psychology why are they doing this and it's like follow Huron Greyjoy's example and you're probably like a step or two behind actually getting to the point where you are ice demons, where you do have an army of whites in a world with literal magic. You have to, you have to uh, jump from the tower. You have to mm. try and fly. And the others, for their many, many horrible flaws, they are just taking the next step that is possible in this world for people who have access to magic. You could just stop at being the undying of Karth and running a city from your weird blue heart room. <laughs> That's essentially being like the secret power behind a giant wealthy city. That's one way you could use your magic. Or you could be like the others and you could try to ignore society and make one where you're the only thing that matters. 
I think you did a great job of defining all the structures of those villainies there, the small and the large and the inside and the out. And you have those characters like Joffrey Ramsey where you see the shriveled little heart inside them that motivates their horrible actions. And with Euron as someone who just deliberately sacrificed that from the start. And so he, he becomes just in another category of villain. And I think it, in terms of his role in the story, it's also worth considering which region of Westeros specifically Euron is threatening. The Reach, the Reach and more broadly yeah. the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the part of Westeros likely to suffer the least from the invasion of the White Walkers, right? I mean, troops for these areas didn't even march north to Winterfell in Season 8. They were just off the story map by then. Mm-hmm. And Danny, when it, whatever she gets up to in King's Landing, whatever order of events she goes to, she is also unlikely to cause trouble in the southwest. I don't think she's going to show up in the reach at any point. But it's like, they can't escape unscathed, right, in the story. <laughs> like, the reach is the heart of all, like, the wealth and the song and the glory. Like, you know that stuff has to burn, at least to a certain extent. So Euron is there to conveniently cause trouble for them. They're the part of Westeros that's has gone untouched in certain respects. And I think his job is to get them engaged in, in the big struggles and conflicts in a way that they might not otherwise be. George has talked about Garland and Willis Terrell having important roles to play despite being left out of the show. And I think that's that's what this is, dealing with Euron and getting the Reach engaged in these, these larger effects. You know, so Sam might be on our ground as the POB for that since he's in the area in Old Town. So I think that's that's also in part why Euron exists, is so that it's not just the North fighting the big battles, you know mm. what I mean? It's also important that the Reach for a long time have largely been left out of wars because not only are they wealthy, but they're also kind of the breadbasket of Westeros. They're mm-hmm. the, you want to take the Reach, you don't want to sack it. You don't want to burn that because that's where your food comes from. Absolutely. Especially with the long winters. It's important that whoever, that even the, the high towers, they probably should have been deposed a long time ago by the Tyrells or the gardeners. But there's sort of this thing in the reach where they, they have little wars. They don't really have the big ones. Even the field of fire where the gardeners all all died was not really in the breadbasket. It was more towards um, kind of the northern section, almost between the Westerlands, because that's who they had united with in order to fight. And... It's it's suicidal in the sense that Euron would even want to, to sack the Reach, and then even that's where mm-hmm. he pushed Quellon to go. That's and where Balon. That's where they were going too. They they went down and sacked the Reach. It's like Euron is trying to just completely cut off the legs of the society that he's in. Like with winter coming, the others coming, the Reach gone, the grain gone. More people will die of starvation than the White Walkers probably. That's very true, and you have to. All these regions have their problems. They also have grayscale in the mix. Everything, every kind of apocalypse is happening in Westeros at once. And I think that for me, like the big question about Euron's role in the story is thinking about the thinking about the writing process, thinking about how he fits in George's mind. If he is so important, if he is, you know, the the negative of Bran and John, if he is auditioning to be the villain of the whole damn thing, why doesn't he show up until yeah. halfway through, <laughs> until book four? Did George just lose him in the narrative bloat? Well, that's definitely possible, given how the writing process for Feast and Dance went especially. But if you look at how Euron talks about the war at the King's Moat, he talks about it as an opportunity that he has come to exploit. The War of Five Kings is this graveyard of which he is the feasting crow. He is the god. In other words, the war made Euron possible. His rise is the bill coming due for the War of Five Kings. This is what you made of power? Well, look who gets to take over now. He is the ultimate feasting crow. The first three books set the table for him. So for me, it works in that regard that he only shows up after all that is done because he's saying you were just rolling out the red carpet for me. You had no idea, but you were just getting everything set up so I could take over. You you ruined everything, and now I'm here to make it all worse. You deserve it because you ruined everything. 
And in that regard, I think like the best reference point for Euron's character isn't Lovecraft or Stephen King or Thomas Pynchon or whatever you want to throw out there. It's I think it's it's the it's the poets and the novelists of the post World War One era who were haunted not only by the scars left by the Great War, but by trepidation that something even worse was coming down the line. The second coming. Mm. What rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Old Town to be born. And that's that's the tone I really like about Euron is this this sense that you know we've 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 turned our world into a graveyard and now we're just going to hand it over to this guy because he's the kind of guy who would be in charge of a graveyard like yeah the westeros euron wants to rule over is this blood-soaked horrorscape of sacrifice and death but isn't that kind of how westeros looks yeah right that's kind of how it is right maybe, now maybe he's kind of appropriate maybe we made this happen that's what i like about euron is that all these doors opening for him it's not just him it's everyone making it easy for him and i think that's something really kind of haunting and effective for a villain. That's true. And you think about, like, uh, you were talking about how people, the people of Westeros and their wars and their rebellions were creating the scenario for Euron to come about. Even characters you wouldn't even think about it, like Tywin Lannister's breaking of guest right at the Red Wedding. It's mm-hmm. it's the same idea behind Euron, where Tywin is essentially saying, like, the Seven don't exist. They're not going to punish yep. me for this. I'm too powerful. Humans won't. So what's the point? And it's this. Dead, I'm the god. Yep. Uh, Tywin's the god now of Westeros, and Euron is the source stepping into the same role, making the same argument. Especially when you see characters like, eventually, people are going to know Lady Stoneheart exists. People are going to know the others exist, and they they act as almost a proof of concept that the things that mm. Westeros has its society built around are not true. There, there is, there is this horror behind it. There. There is something worse than death, basically. There is something worse than being, um, than pissing off the Seven who don't do anything. There's Euron. There's the others. There's Lady Stoneheart. There's the rising tide of blood that's washing over it that will not stop for anybody. There's the world that Patchface sees. The, the black strings that make you dance, as McCrow describes it to Victorian. Yeah, the wheels within wheels. I mean, that's... Uh, isn't that what a lot of great horror, a lot of great Lovecraftian horror is about, is like peel back reality and there's just like machines and tentacles and just horror. And like that's not the exception to the reality. That's what reality is. Mm-hmm. And Euron's here to like to, to make that happen, as you said, to to drag something in with him, to make that to make that nightmare real. And I think that is, you know, it's he's not he's not psychologically interesting, I don't think, as a villain. <laughs> like like Tywin is someone yeah. you can think about as a character for a like a long time and go like, oh, what was he trying to do there? What was he deciding? When did he become this? Who else could he have been? Euron's not like that at all. Euron is just like this this just like tunnel to hell. And I think what makes him interesting is all the details around him and the structure around him that leads you to conclude how is how is this guy not just gibbering in a corner? How is it that he's in charge? <laughs> And that, that, I think, is says so much about how George thinks about both politics and magic and how they work together. Yeah, it, in Lovecraft's world, he would be like an Eric Zahn figure. He'd be playing mm-hmm. his, his violin in the attic of some building, tempting the chaos, but not actually bringing into the world kind of afraid by it. George has gone the other way and said, no, yes. he's, he's going to herald it in, or he's going to try to, who knows if he actually can. There's a great uh, comment here from the chat. Carl Karstark says, Euron is stepping into the void created by all the chaos of climate, politics, and war. Art imitating life, imitating art. Oh, well said, sir. Yeah. That sums it up. Mm-hmm. Chef's kiss to that one. Uh, yeah, I, I agree that, that his role is, the, is a bridge um, where he is trying to, George is using him to wed together these really disparate parts of A Song of Ice and Fire that people really love. There's, there's people like you and me 
really love the magical side and the weird side and the Lovecraft side and this like cosmic horror and like imagining what you could do with like lights or what are the undying doing. But then there's a lot of other people who really just like the interpersonal stuff and they like the politics and they like mm -hmm. rooting for their favorite characters and that kind of stuff. And they have to come together somehow to get to yes. the end of the story. And that's, it's almost like an extreme Miramis not situation for him. He's been trying to figure out how to introduce this stuff back in. Like the same book where you're on, well, the same uh, Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons are kind of one book, just kind of split. Mm -hmm. The same large book where Euron is showing up is also the book where we see Melisandre's POV. It's the same book where we learn that Lady Stone, what she's doing in the Riverlands. It's the same one where we're learning about <clears throat> uh, Beric Dondarrion and how he what he did when he saw Catelyn Stark and all the, and like the the warlocks being captured by Euron it's all coming at the same time he's raising yes. the the sea of mm -hmm. blood around Westeros after getting you in on the politics and it's really hard to get two really different audiences like that aligned to like the same ending and he needs he needs you need the spark you need the catalyst to take all these forces on the margins and bring them to the center of the stage you know you think about like the the climax to do the right thing when everyone's gathering together around the pizzeria and the riots are break, about to break out, but it's one person who throws the garbage can through the window and makes it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Euron's supposed to be. He's the one that actually kicks the door in to the age of wonder and terror. I think you kind of expected to maybe John's plot would be more along those lines, or maybe Brand's would would do it. But I think it's clear that he thinks that those are not enough. That John's interactions with the others and meeting Ocraster and Bran's interactions with the Weirwoods and seeing this stuff is not bridging. It's enough for the North. No. But for, to get the entire story yeah. tied into this stuff, I do think you need someone else. And, you know, Sam is also a great POV for this, because what was Sam's first chapter? Yeah. Running from the others. So, of course, <laughs> like, you know, I think it's hilarious, by the way, that if this is true, that Sam crossed a continent and didn't escape the apocalypse oh. at all. He just went right into the other half of it. I think that fits him so well and will just be hilarious if it's true. That's true. That's a great point. Sam just cannot avoid the worst things in the world. Nope, uh, he just went like a big old circle. He went from the end of the world to the end of the world. The poor, poor sucker. Went from the others to the guy that wants to be them. Um, exactly right. Uh, so we reached the end of our prepared uh, stuff. We have some few questions here. You guys in the chat, um, I'm not, uh, how much longer do you feel like going on, Emmett? I can stick around for, for a while. Okay. Yeah, so I'm good. So definitely take some start throwing questions, questions in the chat. Um, super chats if you want to make sure that they get to the top and we'll make sure we do them, that kind of stuff. But I have some prepared ones here uh, from uh, patrons and people on Twitter. Uh, Sanrixians ask, what do you guys think Euron will actually summon? Is it, Kra is it Kraken? Is it Naga? Etc. You know, kind of like he, he's very much um, drawing on the idea of Lovecraft, the, uh, the fish monsters. Those are implied to be around the Ironborn and the Iron Islands. Like, is it that? Is it just the others? Like, what is what is he really going to do? What, what do you think the effect of the horn will be? When I think about, like, the magical elements in the Song of Ice and Fire, you know, you think about, like, okay, the dragons. We see them born, and they stick around. We learn about a lot of them. They, they get involved in things. And then there's, like, the shadow babies. And there's two of them, mm -hmm. and then they vanish. And then Melisandre has a thing where, like, eh, I can't really do any more with Stannis. Davos, do you want to try it out? And Davos is like, no, of course <laughs> not. Absolutely not. So some magical elements in this world are, like, you know, dwelled upon greatly. They're well integrated. But some of them just, like, serve a plot role, serve a kind of image and a theme door just trying out. And then the story kind of moves on. 
And so I do think if there is like a literal Lovecraftian imagery, krakens, tentacles, monsters of that kind around Euron, and there is, I think, a lot of evidence for it, I think it's going to be in that latter category. Like, it's not actually what's going to be the whole point of everything. Because, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't a love, this isn't actually a Lovecraft story. It's no. just one occasionally influenced by a Lovecraft story. So I think it'll more be in that vein of like, I think we could get like an amazing, like, end of Aaron's last chapter is tentacles rising from a bloody oh. sea. And I think George wants to give us that image, but I also don't think he wants that to be his story. So I think if we do get that, I think we will get it. And then we will move on to like the high tower, the horn of winter. If that stuff gets involved, I don't think that's going to be like the center of everything. Interesting. The one thing will be is since Aaron is probably going to be our POV while this happens, how much of it will even be real. It's a way that you're that George True. can trick high fantasy into his story by making sure that you know as the audience member that Aaron is seeing things that aren't there. So even if it's mm-hmm. even if it's somebody like with Victorian's weird Kraken mask running, who knows what he'll see that in in his drug trips. So it could be both. It could be mundane. It could just be the Ironborn sacking Old Town. But he could also make it high fantasy. Although I tend to think, I've had this idea for a while and I've argued with Jeff about it, uh, that I think the Horn of Winter, what it actually does is calls the dead. Or like forces whites to obey you because okay interesting there's, sure there's a, the like, giants from the earth okay waking yeah waking the essentially waking the dead because john blows it and then the others attack and it's like what, yeah, what if they lost solid argument what if they lost their whites for a second realized the horn of winter was in play and ran to go find it and they found the fist of the first one that kind of thing that's an interesting idea for sure so because yeah I mean, there is ambiguity surrounding the horn especially since john tries to blow it mm-hmm. so that's an interpretation i like for sure um and if he does that in old town well i'm sure there's a lot of corpses in the water dead things in the water from over the years we know, oh, we know, we know True. That, Old Town's got lots of corpses. Oh, no. They've been through plagues. What did they do with the bodies? They probably throw them in the water. Oh, no. True. Oh, no. Dead things in the water. That kind of thing. I think that would make sense. I, I am not discounting like actual Krakens. I don't, he has magical creatures. He has otherworldly things. They're, they're literal dragons. I mean, like, could there be actual Krakens? Sure. Or see dragons, if, why not? If, if so, a cameo, though. I think he'll just be like, eh, and, then, and that's it. Because that's it. He, can't, he can't turn the story over to that because it has not been central enough. That's true. Uh, from the chat, uh, Barrel Rider says, do you think Pate, fake Pate is going to meet Euron? I think that's definitely on the table. What happens when a faceless man meets back up with Euron? And is, and was it actually Jacken that threw Balon? It seems like it must have been, right? How many faceless men are running around Westeros? It's so unclear how the faceless men work, right? Because, like, can they communicate with home base? Because was Jockin always sent to kill Balin? Because the timing doesn't seem to work out for that in terms mm. of when Euron was been around. So that's that's still, yeah, dramatically unclear to me. But, yeah, I mean, we're talking about magical elements in Old Town. One of them definitely is that faceless man. He seems to be going after the death of dragons, a.k.a. blood and fire, that the maesters keep under lock and key, which could be useful to Euron in a number of respects. So I do wonder if they're supposed to cross paths somehow. Did Euron also pay the Faceless Men to kill Balon and then open the gates of Old Town? That's entirely possible, too. That'd be kind of messed up. Uh, Super chat here from Aaron M., one of my patrons. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, She says, this has lived up to the hype I built in my head. Thanks, guys. Why do you think George chose to give the Ironborn a democratic way of electing their leaders, even though they're such a martial culture? I I think that actually speaks to the sort of the primitive nature of their of their society like the idea of kings and inheritance is not is relatively well a a lot of cultures have sort of 
the chief is an elected figure or they depose the person who's doing a bad job pretty easily and they they just pick somebody else to be the figurehead like even when we look at like societies like uh volantis or no not volantis pentos where they kill the they kill the prince when things aren't going bad you actually see that in ancient like uh celtic and english cultures where like there's a thing called the bog bodies when the king was when the world was going bad they would kill the king throw him in the water and then pick a new king so the idea of non-inheritance in the iron islands probably speaks to the age how far back they've gone and that they've given it up for primogeniture and are now going back exactly right and i think it's also a product of the seafaring culture as theon thinks to himself a dagmar cleftjaw they're all captains and kings on their own boat you're yeah. not gonna get any my lords or princes here and i think part of part of that with the just the independence and you know the intense fealty to the captain you have to have when you're alone in the ship means those captains are less inclined to knuckle under to who you are just because who your father was I don't, so I think that's that. It's it's, it's not even like a, an ideological belief in democracy. It's more that there's just a bunch of little kings yeah. on the Iron Islands. So you have to get all those little kings together to pick the real one. That's true. I mean, and the the fact that the Iron Islands are so are they're not far apart, but they're also crappy and they're also separated. And the waters mm-hmm. around that area is not always great. So, like, if Pike decides to go raid the Reach and like one of the other islands decides to go raid the north, well, it's kind of hard to have a, a centralized leader. You would essentially have True. you have their society break down into a series of small units when they actually go to war. Although it's implied that there was a time when the Iron Islands were one because, um, what is it, the Ten Towers is built in a really weird way that it seems like there used to be something else there. Um, it kind of mm-hmm. looks like a, a volcanic explosion sort of thing. Some people have wondered if the Hammer of Waters was a volcanic explosion coming up from under in Iron Man Bay and the Iron Islands is all that's left after like a mega volcano kind of thing. George, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Uh, Aaron, uh, let's see, let's grab the next one. Um, so interesting, again, she wants us to talk about the silence, the ship itself. Um, what do you, Ooh. what do we think about it? Like, is there, like any sort of influences? Do you like it? Do you, like, what do you think about the song? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's my favorite ship in the Song of Ice and Fire. Shockingly, I know. <gasps> but I think it's, I think it's, it sums up what Euron wants to do, which is he just he wants to silence every voice but himself, every story but himself. Like, if you think, what's the name of the series? A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. So how would, how, would, how would the ultimate villain, how would the person who's trying to bring that song to a screeching halt, how would they present themselves in as an agent of silence? Someone who calls their ship that, someone who mutes everyone on board. And it's you know red red to hide the bloodstains and and low and cruel and fast and it has the the you know the um the the uh, the woman on the woman up front mm-hmm. with uh, without a mouth just to, in an exact fate as as uh, suffered by folly of flowers and the forsaken and I think that oh. it's 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 this image of of not just fear but negation negation of who you are and everything you believe. It's, he's, he's not content to kill you. He wants to make you his. And I think I think the silence gets that across just by looking at it. I also find the, the silence really interesting in terms of, like, the design of it. So he clearly designed the ship for a specific purpose. He painted the holes red. He has his giant black sails. He has his crew of mutes. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone, he has the distinctive uh, woman on the front of it, like you were talking about. So it's made to be recognized, which is not always what you want from a pirate ship. Actual pirate ships usually want to seem point. Like, want to seem like something else until they unfurl the black sails and they want you to surrender. He's not even trying to disguise what it is and who he is. When you see the the 
that ship going through the water, he wants you to drop anchor and give up instantly. It's not a ship for fighting, basically. Like I would no, it's, yeah. I would guess it's there's true. very few times where Euron has actually had to forcibly board a ship like Victorian does. It's it's built for intimidation. That's a great comparison to to real pirates, because that's the thing about Euron. He's not really a pirate. Like he acts like one, he talks like one, he has an eye patch, but that's a skin he's wearing. It's not really how he he functions. He functions as like a cult leader or mm-hmm. a wizard. That's like his organizing principle, and he just has to fool the pirates into thinking he's one of them. And yeah, he just wants everybody to just hand over stuff without a fight. And he wants mm-hmm. when he sails into uh, like a when he sails into a bay, when he sails into like a shipyard or something like that, he wants to make sure when he walks off, he doesn't have to fight anybody. You're like Victoria would get off a boat and probably have to start punching people or like swinging his axe around to get people to know who he is. That, he actually has that problem when he gets to Slaver's Bay, where um, there's the famous line about he's like, "We will sail to Dothraki Sea," and the guy's like, "What are you talking about? You're an idiot." Well. Nobody would say that to Euron Greyjoy because they know him already. These, this guy does not know Victorian. He doesn't know he's going to die for that comment. And it creates conflicts that Euron likes to avoid that Victorian thrives on. It's, it really shows the difference in character, and it goes down to the ship itself. Even the crew of mutes. If you know nothing else about Euron Greyjoy, knowing that he muted and cut out the tongues of his entire crew tells you everything you need to know about him beforehand. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Guilty Undertaker says, uh, we kind of talked about this earlier, does Euron command his mutes through skin changing? I think it's a possibility. I, we haven't seen anybody do that. We haven't seen one person control multiple bodies. You know what I mean? It's been yep, one to no, that's one. True. The others can do it, but the way they do it seems to be puppetry, where they are sort of lifting limbs and arms or something like that. Kind of like uh, mm-hmm. George does it in Night Flyers, where the Night Flyer itself can animate multiple corpses at the same time through psychic means, where it's essentially picking them up and moving them. Being able to human skin change one person is a massive achievement in this world. Multiple would be insane, which would really speak That's to your own. That's true. Maybe it's just the threat. I mean, because, like... You know, Euron's crew might be in thrall of him, not literally, but just they're just so terrified of him that they, they follow his orders, even though really they could overpower him. I mean, like, you know, Mormont says it at Craster's Keep. Like, technically, these women could get together and all overpower Craster, but just they've been so terrorized and trained by him over the years to not think about things that way mm. and to not have any other contact with the outside world. Maybe Euron has done the same thing to his crew. Maybe he just, you know, he can't skin change all of them, but... What if it's you that he's getting yeah. What if you're the one? What if he jumps in your head right when you're thinking those treasonous thoughts? He's probably not gonna. But what if he does? And unfortunately, he did the same thing to Uri and Aaron, where he never, it was never, unfortunately, like he says, one at the same, at both. He never was assaulting him at the same time. He would have one way That's outside the exactly. door and listen. And he used just the fear. Did that tension, the knowledge of it might be you. I think that's, that might, again, this is all supposition, but that's, I mean, because a lot of what you say about Euron is he, he likes to take a very familiar abuser's logic that I think mm-hmm. a lot of us are familiar with and just, you know, you, you add sorcery to that. Yeah. I think that's like, that's Euron's MO, and I think that's what we're talking about here. Definitely. Uh, question here from Twitter. Um, Rava Teja says, do you think Daenerys will ally with Euron? Victoria may have Dragonbinder, but he will be a dead man for all we know. Well, he probably is already dead. He tries to steal a dragon like Quentin would fail and do so. Where they both fail, Euron, will he succeed with Rhaegal? 
uh, drawing Danny's attention. My my intuition on this is that Dario and Euron are like we were talking about. They're cut from the same cloth and sort of and oh, yeah. sort of oh, yeah. how they function in the world, how they get people to do what they want. The graphic displays of violence, the explicit um, threat of sexual violence too, that you're, uh, both of them basically parade around as a good thing, as how they keep things going. I wonder. It's hard to say, because when Danny comes back from the Dothraki Sea with Drogon, will she still find a guy like Dario attractive? Or will that part of her life be over now? Will she be looking for less excitement, which is kind of what Dario is, and being like a, sort of like a rebellion thing? Will, will she be looking for someone like his Dar, or will she be looking for someone like Dario? I tend to think, if she's serious about the conquest, that somebody like Euron will not actually offer that much for her anymore, especially if he's trying to take her dragons. Like, it's not just, like, a pet. These are her children. If Euron and Victorian actually steal one, she's not going to see that as, like, oh, wow, you took a dragon. That's really cool. We're now dragon riders together. She's going to be like, you kidnapped my kid, you fucker. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's also colored by, you know, Danny has to end up with John at least temporarily. Mm. So, like, how does that really fit in if with her sticking around with Euron? There is that that uh, that tall, pale, terrible figure in the Forsaken, Euron's mate, his consort. But that might, first of all, that might not refer to Danny at all. And even if it does, it might just be Euron's projection of Danny. Like we're seeing his desire for Danny, his desire, his vision of what's going to happen. Because yeah, Dario and Euron have a lot in common, and I think that's there to make it possible that Euron would be tempted by someone like Euron. But in the end, I think she's going for John, and John is like the Quentin equivalent mm-hmm. in this case, right? You know, the kind of the solemn, plain-faced boy who has like more in common with ned stark than with someone you know more attractive and dashing like his companions so i think the fact that danny we can be pretty sure is leading in that direction makes me think euron is supposed to be a temptation that she rejects i think yes. that's ultimately what's going to happen there i think that's i think that's exactly right where there is parts of dario that are attractive in small doses but danny has already basically said like i'm kind of done with this now she has moved on in her life and being extra Dario, I don't think will actually be a temptation. It will just kind of put maybe almost a bad taste in her mouth thinking back yeah. to that she was with Dario. Like when you look back on like your exes and you're like, wow, I made a really bad choice there. Do I really want to do that times five? Yeah, he puts it into stark relief, so to speak, by making the consequences That's really clear. So I think, I think exactly. I think we are supposed to worry, <clears throat> oh, no, will, will Danny do it? And Dario makes it plausible that she would do it. But I think she ultimately won't. Uh, we have a super chat here from uh, Frank Bum. Thanks very much, Frank. Uh, you are not banned mm-hmm. for now. <laughs> um, for once. He, he says, uh, great chat, both huge fan of the interweaving of magical and political that you're on both represents and exploits. By the way, this is a credit to you as a, a person in the fandom. You got someone like Frank on board with magic. True. That That's is an not accomplishment. I'll take it. Uh, but he says, my question is the one I put on Twitter about Makoro, his game plan, saying it to you et cetera. Thanks again. Um, did you see this question? I'm going to see if I can find it. Yeah, I did, but let me get the uh, okay. let's get the wording of it right here. I've been ignoring Twitter for a while, so I may have missed it. Probably for the best. <laughs> Twitter is the worst. It's, it's, it's the only place we have left. Ah, yeah, okay. Um... What is Makuro's game plan? 
Mm. If we think he's trying to aid Danny, how does Vic blowing the dragon horn and presumably killing Vic, hopefully hilariously, and then sending a dragon Euron's way benefit Danny? Is Makuro going rogue? Does Danny need to lose a dragon, or is this an interpretive error on Makuro's part? He seems to have a better track record than Mel, but he, maybe he's not completely accurate. Is he like more like Jojen, where he like he has a good sense on things of what he's seeing, but doesn't always know how it's going to turn out? So uh, that's yeah, that's a good question. What do you th- what do you think about that, sir? What's uh, what is Makuro up to in the midst of all this? Because he kind of seems to be potentially throwing a a wrench in Euron's plans, but maybe not. Maybe he's accidentally helping him. Your uh, Makuro is one of those characters that when I think about him, um, there's a there's a gimmick that happened in the show Sherlock when he looked at um, what's her name, um, the woman. I forget her name. Um, where, it's a Stephen Moffat show, so the woman is about right. Yeah, he looks at uh, he looks at John Watson, and he in his mind he lays out different qualities about him, like his lifestyle, and he looks back at her, and he just sees question marks everywhere, and it's like that's how I think about McCormick. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he's doing, I don't know why he's doing it, or even what he's doing in the story, because why, like, we understand that uh, Melisandre is kind of a. Um, uh, sort of a rogue figure within the rural lore faith. She's gone off to do her sure. own thing. Is Makoro closer to what Benero wants? Is it, or is he doing his own thing too? Is this like a problem within the rural lore religion where there's all these people that all think they found the savior and they're all trying to push sure. them forwards and it's just like a collision of people that think they're Azorai? I mean, that's kind of what's happening. Stannis uh, has been lured by one. Why not more of them? Uh, in terms of what he's doing... If he's a servant of Benero and he really believes what the the Orthodox relore—that's that, a weird thing to say—Orthodox relore take is that that Danny is Azor Ahai come again, that her dragons mark her as the one that will end the darkness. Then maybe he's just trying to get to her, and he's just using because they found him at sea, right? He didn't like—he was just like floating in the water, and they picked him up. He was kind of screwed. So this could just be opportunism where he's like, well, Victorian's the biggest idiot I've ever seen. I've got to get to Danny. He's on his way to Danny. Maybe I can use this to my advantage and not die along the way. That's probably what's happening more than anything. I am curious about it because Makuro does see a, a vision of Euron mm-hmm. uh, in, in one of Tyrion's dance chapters. It's not it, the chapter ends with it, so he doesn't identify it as Euron. It doesn't, you know, we're not given an indication he knows exactly what he's looking at, but he does... He doesn't know that that person is someone who is hunting Daenerys. Mm-hmm. And Mercuro seems like an intelligent man. I'm sure if he gets Euron described to him by one of Victorian's crew, he probably knows who he's dealing with. So I gotta think Mercuro is trying to make it not happen that Euron ends up with a dragon. But his motivations are so unclear that it's difficult to say that for sure. And it's difficult to say about whether he's going to succeed or whether Euron gets one over him. But if, like, if Dragonbinder is supposed to be end up being a dud or a red herring mm-hmm. and like not doing actually that much or not helping Euron, then Makuro was probably how. You know what I mean? Like Makuro has like fixed it so that uh, Danny doesn't lose one of her dragons. Because it seems like by all indications he's gonna end up an earnest Danny supporter. Yeah. And like Danny Danny has long seemed to have it, it, it has long made sense to me that Danny's gonna have some kind of connection to Relore eventually. And Makuro and Bonero seem to be like characters invented to make that happen. So I got to think their intentions are pro Danny. So I, 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 again, as you say, a lot of question marks. But I don't think that Makuro is actively trying to help out Euron. It would it would be surprising to me if somebody from the Faith of Relore looks at Euron and says, 
that's who I support. That'll end well. He seems like yeah. the, he seems like the embodiment of the great other, which seems like mm -hmm. a bad thing to go for. Uh, question from further up, a video game vision quest. Interesting name. Uh, it says, was it revealed that uh, Varys' child spies also don't have tongues or they imagine it? No, that's true. He does cut out their tongues as well. And that's it's a good comparison. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a nice way of filtering back somebody like Varys into Euron and how he seems to be like absorbing all these other suit, uh, villains within A Song of Ice and Fire. It also kind of tells you that maybe how Tyrion will view um, Euron because if if they're similar characters in the way they go about things and their intelligence, will that make Euron attractive to Tyrion in some way? In the way that he is a big fan of Varys, despite in his head knowing he's a terrible person, I shouldn't trust him, but I do anyway. Well, we were making Tyrion-Euron comparisons <clears throat> earlier, so that's that. That is an interesting thing to consider for sure. You know, Euron's just never had his his back against the wall the way Tyrion has in Dance. You know, he's never been disadvantaged. So it's 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 just interesting to consider, but yeah. So I think Makuro will either be, you know, how Makuro will either be the reason Euron doesn't get his hand on a dragon, or he will unwittingly be the reason Euron does get his hand on a dragon. You oh, know what I mean? That he's, would hurt. he's gonna he's gonna push that plot in one direction or the other. I feel like in a way that he could not have predicted. Thanks, Makuro. Mm -hmm. Way to Thanks go, bunch, buddy. Uh, got a let's see here. Question from uh, Aaron M. This was from uh, another patron question. <laughs> This is a, a question with a bit of a point of contention that I don't think a lot of people know about. It says, does Matt believe in the Eldritch Apocalypse, a.k.a. the thing I have Emmett on to talk about with right now? The answer is complicated. The answer is I no, I, I have... You're allowed to believe whatever you want, Matt. You're entitled to your incorrect opinions. We, we live know. in America still for the moment. Don't get us started on Renly and Stance. But um, bas <laughs> basically... I have read your essay, Eldritch Apocalypse, and it is one of the more convincing things I've ever read. It is, well, thank you, sir. It is spot on with its analysis. Your attention to detail is awesome. Your comparisons are perfect, especially with George's love of that world. The part where I end up pumping the brakes is right when we get to the end, right till we get sure. to the point of him blowing the horn and the wall coming down and the Eldritch Apocalypse falling. I don't think in this story that George is going to do it. He wants you, though, to very much think he's about to. He wants you to think that this is where it's going, that Euron will be the harbinger of doom and that the world's going to, like, the old cities and the old ones are going to rise from the ocean and it's going to be just total chaos. I think that's too high fantasy for the kind of world he's creating, but I don't disagree with any of the rest of it. It's just, will he step through the door himself, much like, well, you're on pull the chaos through. I don't think so, but it's right there. Well, I think that's perfectly fair. No, I, I, like I said, I, I think this specific Lovecraft imagery is there as like an Easter egg and because George loves it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the core of what's going on. I think the core of what's going on is the White Walker stuff. I Definitely. think that ends, is, is going to end up being Euron's major contribution to the plot. And I think that is being hidden just under the surface enough for it to still be functioning as a surprise. Although like everything else in the Song of Ice and Fire, we've been picking over it since forever. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think you're, you're totally right. And like, you know, it's, it's we all get like super enthusiastic with our theories and take them off in directions that don't fit. And we always have to think about how would this coherently play out within the pre-existing framework of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think if Euron has a connection to Bloodraven and that whole brand side of things like that, that's a way of, that's a link. Mm -hmm. That's a, a way of bringing him into the larger story instead of just like bloating it beyond recognition. So I do think 
you know, the the Lovecraft stuff is what gets is what gets me hooked and what got me interested. But I think the the deeper currents, I think, is where his actual impact on the story is going to be. Again, in the same way, like the the Black Gate didn't end up being isn't yeah. super important. It's just like a cool thing George likes, and it, it hints at his larger universe, but it's not the central concept. There's only a couple shadow babies. That's not going to be important. This is not going to turn into a Lovecraft story. It's just his way of, of you know, of, of tipping the hat, nodding to his influences for sure. It's like the the House of the Undying. I talked about this with uh, our friend Michael Bookshelf Stud on my Halloween stream, and one of the things you come away with from reading that chapter is this does not need to exist in Dana's, Daenerys' chapter or these books. Like, there are other ways you can do this other than having him walk through, other than having her walk through a drug trip in what looks like a, a hall from Dune with, like, the sandworms and, and mm -hmm. also some sort of combinations. To, um, there's other series people brought up when we were talking about it. It slips, it slips my mind at the moment. Oh, yeah. but It's it's the influence machine, the House of the Undying. Yeah. It draws from everything. It's, and a lot of it is self-indulgent, but it's glorious. I, I would say, yeah, um, a lot of the end game of Euron is probably self-indulgence where does he mm -hmm. need to do this? Will he actually do it? Maybe, but it's like, are the undying of Karth coming back? Well, no, because he has Pyat Pri hanging from the Euron's hold. That's what he thinks. This is where this, this is where that part was going. Exactly. Yeah. It was cool, but it's for not in service of the greater story. It's like him, like right. putting a, a flag above all the other fantasy um, authors that he loves and he's referencing. He's like, you guys did cool stuff, but also here's my take. Here's my, and that's why I come back to the Veramir stuff because I do think Euron is ultimately going to be pathetic and grasping mm -hmm. at forces he can't control, and that's ultimately the point. It's just a question of how much damage he does along the way. I think the Forsaken ramps it up to a point where I think he's going to, you know, he's going to have to do something important after that. But I think, yeah, he's not. Euron is wrong <laughs> about the world <laughs> and himself, and ultimately that has to be made clear. That's true. Um, let's see here. I saw a good question. I lost it in the chat. Um, oh, Frank is praising you. Makes sense. Well, sure. <laughs> uh, Twitter is a... Yep. Don't go on Twitter. Um, okay. A guilty Undertaker with another good fantasy question. Uh, they said, how much of Aaron's dreams in the Forsaken are just things that he hallucinated, or how much do you think Euron is actively controlling his mind? I think this is a question best left for you. Yeah, this is, again, that's why the Shaded Evening is great, because it's not clear what it actually does. And because the two times we see it are in such specific charged environments that you can't tease apart what actually is causing what image. Because in part, yeah, Aaron is just terrified of Euron. And he's tripping, and he's being physically deprived and losing his edge on sanity. Mm -hmm. So all of that has to be taken into account. But, like, there's no reason his mind would come up with some of this stuff on its own. Like, why does he have Euron wearing that dark onyx armor before he sees the Valyrian steel armor in the chapter? Like, the dream comes first. Mm -hmm. So that seems like that's Euron. But is it? Is Euron literally in Aaron's dreams, or is Aaron just freaking out? But he sees the burning blood-red sea... That's the same thing Melisandre and Makuro sees. So is that ha him having a genuine revelation? Or is Euron just showing it to him because he wants to? Is Euron just fucking with him and giving him a bad dream? Or is Euron literally entering his brain? It is it's left ambiguous, and I think it's supposed to be purposely ambiguous. But there is, there are some things that hint that there is, you know, there's something legit going on. In the same way that, like, you know, in, in, uh, in The Shining, a lot of The Shining, you can say the ghosts aren't real. Until, there are a couple, until, the, until door the door opens. opens. And I think that's what, yeah, that's what, that's what's going on. This here. was this was a door opening moment, the Forsaken, mm -hmm. where 
Yeah, exactly. I, I love thinking about The Shining in that way. Although the book version, uh, the book version of The Shining is explicit that the ghosts are real the whole way. That is not Jack True. going crazy. It is Kub- it is Kubrick's interpretation of that of making it psychosis or fantasy until finally both. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly right. There is also elements that so let's say that Euron is a psychic character of, like Bran or Blood Raven, and he has these abilities, and maybe mm-hmm. he has a uh, a glass candle. Maybe he has both of these things at the same sure. time. Maybe all, he likes all of the above sort of things, so maybe both, yeah. All those things, their primary ability is invading people's dreams. And mm-hmm. when you talk about these, something like Shade of the Evening, George has worked this idea in his different stories where he has his conception of psychedelic drugs is essentially that you lose your ego and you join like an unconscious dream world kind of thing where everyone's connected. That's sort of what the Weirwood um, collective sure. dream is. It works in like um, a song for Leah. He does this over and over again where he these drugs allow you to join other people in a way you couldn't before. So if Aaron's being forced at a psychedelic, a magical psychedelic, and this is George's conception of how they work, then it's very likely that Aaron is not just seeing things randomly like when you take acid that it is specifically Euron showing him images to destroy his mind that's yeah great point it's good trip versus bad trip right you know the ideal is you feel community you feel beyond yourself you feel like the universe like a warm hug around you and the bad trip is Euron the bad trip is like my brain is being eaten by bats from the inside (laughs) and and that's 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 the feeling he's trying to give you and it's yeah it's this yeah there's the sense of, of of being of being huger than yourself and, uh, and 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 trying to, yeah, trying to, to, to gather that, that that psychic energy at your back and direct it. And in a way, it's like storytelling. Like storytelling is manipulating dream visions and dream images in a way to try to communicate something to you. So maybe that's maybe Euron is like a metaphor for a, a kind of storyteller. Like he is with an imprisoned audience. Like he's the <laughs> he's the most brutal form of, of storyteller. I also love the idea that it's very clear from George's conception of how he thinks psychedelics work is that quite clearly he has tried some. Oh, yeah, like the acid flashbacks in The Forsaken are very fond and very direct. And there's also some DMT imagery thrown in there. So I don't, I don't know when George stopped taking drugs or if he has. Uh, but if. A lot, a lot of, a lot, if he has, a lot of The Forsaken is, is very, uh, very direct in that way. And the same way that like, stuff like Twin Peaks is. It reminds me of how uh, George Carlin talked once that you know, he, you know, he doesn't, doesn't regularly get high anymore. But when he <laughs> writes a lot of jokes and there's like a little too wordy, he wants to edit it, he just keeps a joint around and one hit. That's all it takes now. And it's punch-up time. <laughs> And I think that's, I imagine yeah. that might be how George R. R. Martin works. He that, just keeps a joint in his closet for inspiration if needed. Whatever he has been taking when he wrote The House of the Undying is the exact same stuff that David Lynch was taking when he came up with The Black Lodge. It's the same Oh, yeah. It's, it's the, the same thing. You can see the dwarf imagery in, in, the, in, the, in the Forsaken, it's, and which is directly related to DMT imagery. So I think, yeah, I don't know if George R. R. Martin does transcendental meditation or if he just reads a lot of Clive Barker, <laughs> but it's that same David Lynch, Jodorowsky... You go back to like painters like Hieronymus Bosch, you know, it's that's like the that like overwhelming skin crawling level of detail. And, you know, George, a lot of the time his horror stuff is very stark, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, he wants to break things down to their basic core. But the Forsaken and Shade of the Evening is just like, mm, it's where he ramps it up. Euron very much seems like uh, Bob from Twin Peaks. That kind yes, of figure. That's that's a gr- another great comparison. Uh, it's even like even Bob is described as, as smiling, wearing a smile. Mm-hmm. Everybody run. That's how one of his, his compatriots describes him. And what's the uh, Gorzum bolt? What's the word that they have for like the the stuff of humanity that they like to eat in Twin Peaks? It's like oh, I forgot. G- 
orgasm bully. You know what I'm talking about, though. It's the the, the mm-hmm. made up word. That's 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 what Euron's after. That's what he likes. Yeah, he, in the same way that when he possesses. Well, I don't want to ruin Twin Peaks. You haven't seen it, but Bob is sort of like a, a demon spirit figure. It's hard to understand mm-hmm. what he actually is. But like Euron, he has the ability to function in society to get his yes. to get his supernatural goals enacted basically that's what that's a great comparison it's that yeah that's what i mean that's what everyone loves about david lynch is the mixture of the corny reality and the, and the underneath the you know the the bugs underneath the beautiful lawn in blue velvet and Euron is the same thing smiling eye crow's eye public face private face mm-hmm. the private face of the the... is just horrifying mm-hmm. great character mm-hmm. though well well written um a question here from twitter we had a uh, house of black and white um yes. or at uh valar morgulis they said well they asked a bunch of questions uh Actually, we talked about the silence already. Uh, what portions of Euron's sea-roaming exploits do you think are true? What points are false or wildly exaggerated? This is something I've thought about for a while. I think we actually mm-hmm. got to a Twitter argument about it once or something like that. Or was maybe it was at the Fire and Blood thing. where I was, Sure, sure. I, w- I was talking about how so much of it could be fake, and it kind of doesn't matter if it's real or not. The only stuff that matters is yeah. that he can try and prove them by the artifacts he has. That's enough. I I think that's definitely true. And, like, you know, there's a reason. he his The only time his smile drops is when Roderick Ritter says, you didn't fucking go to Valyria, you <laughs> fraud. <laughs> Which, you know, you know, if he did, why is he reacting so so negatively to that? So I think, you know, what is... We talked about before about Euron sends other people in to do his hard work. Mm-hmm. Euron sends other people in to do the fighting. Euron sent someone else to blow Dragonbire. Euron sent Victarion out to get Danny. So maybe Euron sent someone in. To Valyria instead of him, one of his slaves, someone he captured, someone just as crazy as him. Maybe he found what's his name, the Lannister uncle who tried to go to Valyria. Oh, like, yeah, you, you seem crazy. You go in and grab stuff for me. So I think that's why Euron has Valyrian artifacts, seems connected to Valyria, but still gets pissy when he get, gets called about him whether he actually did there because I think he probably didn't. He probably, because why would he when he has slaves to do that for him? Uh, or even literal mind slaves with his uh, virtual whites he might have with the mutes, mm-hmm. with his human skin changing. He doesn't have he to physically just, go. He, like a drone. He could just look through their the eyes and just, eye. just walk as they go. Mm-hmm. Or has he even been to a shy? Like, that's a long, long... Actually, I don't even know if there's enough time from his exile to go to a shy and back to Westeros. Like, he went it, there, he spent one day, and he came back. He could be bullshitting about the entire thing. When, um, when the sea snake went there, he was gone for literal years. Like four or five years on his whole journey came back a super wealthy man urine has done sort of the same thing but there's only so much time between his exile and his coming back and he can't have done all of it unless so he's maybe ha- he he went there virtually maybe yeah. he went there through, through someone else's eyes you know and that there's something kind of modern about that like you know i haven't been to this place but i've seen i've seen drone footage of it i've seen someone else's video of it someone else's eyes on it maybe that's kind of you know, people have drawn comparisons between the hive minds and George's stories and stuff like the internet nowadays. Maybe this is a, a version of that with Euron. Uh, much the same way that Blood Raven essentially uh, plays back his home movies. He talks to Bran about it, where he's like, he's, exactly. He's probably exactly watched right. Game and Blackfire every step of the way, every moment of Sheer Sea Star. He's probably watched start to finish. He probably knows exactly mm-hmm. where she ended up. Well, who knows? She's magical herself. Maybe she could block him. But it's True. the same sort of thing. True. If he is that kind of character, then. Would he, has Bran physically walked had, like fan Bran was not physically there when he called to his father in the Godswood, but was he there? Well, according to Ned, probably because he heard him. Yep. So it, same, same, it's same sort deal. Of, mm-hmm. Like, are we, are we actually together now, Emmett? Or who knows? Right. <laughs> exactly right. You know, 
people have people far smarter than me have written about uh, you know the confluence between digital spaces and hauntings, mm-hmm. and you know the way we think about ghosts being similar to the way we think about people online. And I think there's something to that, especially with Euron. I do like the idea that a lot of his deeds are just basically like charlatanism as its highest, because that's mm-hmm. what he seems to be. He seems to be the kind of guy oh, who, who does not want you to question anything. He's ne- like I said earlier. He's, I don't even think we've even seen him swing his sword. I don't think we will by the end of the series. Maybe once to kill a captive. Like, will he ever actually get into a battle? No, probably not. Like, because he can. I mean, that's why it's interesting that I think he, you know, his forces might go up against Garland Terrell, who's one of the better swordsmen, you know, in the Reach, and might actually be able to take him down in that regard. But yeah, I mean, you're on. That's the thing to get into because it's like, okay, well then, is he just all talk? Well, probably not, because he does have a lot of stuff, and the yeah. Forsaken makes him seem really scary. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this interesting conflict that I, I think has has yet to be resolved with Euron's character. Is is why, why is there so much pointing to him being a fraud and so much pointing to him being dangerous? And Melisandre might be a good reference point to that, because Melisandre is clearly making a lot of stuff up, yes. Mel, and wrong, and just also just wrong about a lot of stuff. But she also has genuine powers that we keep learning more about as we go through the story that has been hidden from us so far. So I think this is the balance George is trying to walk, and it's not always perfect. Sometimes it's confusing. But it, it gets back to what he loves about fantasy, right? He says about fantasy is an escape from reality. Fantasy is lapis lazuli and red meat on the tongue and, you know, habanero peppers. But also, like, you know, it only feels that way because it's such a change from reality where, where, where it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. And it, that's, always, that's always how he writes magic. And I think Euron is ultimately going to be an articulation of that same pattern. It's real, but it also thinks it's way more important than it is. And, it's, and he can't ultimately control it. I like, um, I like thinking about it in terms of a song for Leah, uh, one of George's first, mm. first short stories. In it, the, the temptation to join the Grishka is essentially sort of like joining the Weirwoods, where it'll be like happiness and bells and good times forever will all be one and then you get to the end of the story and what's the grishka it's a goddamn fungus that eats your body and it's mm-hmm. like the reality of euron versus his hype is probably a similar idea where whatever he's actually done the the truth to it is a weird fungus eating people <laughs> right it's, it's not impressive i mean what is what does his name sound like euron it sounds like urine yeah it sounds like piss yes like that's ultimately what he is. <laughs> that's true. You know, and you know, you may you may take a nice long piss after you have a, a, a trip on acid, but it's still just piss. <laughs> yes, Euron still has to poop somewhere. He's not actually otherworldly. And that's that's what that also makes him a great villain. Is I think he doesn't want to be human, but he has to be. He still is. He's not gonna whatever he does. I don't think he's gonna escape that. He would like to, but he can't. <laughs> uh, question here from uh, Rain or Shine. Well, I almost said that wrong. I only got it after reading it, like just a quarter of a second beforehand. Uh, will Tyrion be tortured by Euron? I really do think that the, mm, that the intersection of Tyrion and Euron, and actually the fact that Daenerys has all these like sort of grifters following her around, trying to take her power, and your interactions between them, like it's not just those two. It's Tyrion. It's Euron. It's also Jorah. It's also going to be um, uh, Marwyn the Mage. Another explicitly magical figure who's on her way with her uncle or her great sure. uncle in a rum cask as she gets to like um as she gets to westeros even Varys and illyrio are grifters on her legacy they are trying to use her in order to prop up aegon they want to steal her dragons so do the um sort of the martels in a way i mean telling True. quentin I mean, they told him, try and marry her, but if you don't, just, like, you know, take the dragon anyway. That's sort of her relationship to all the powerful people around her. And there's going to be kind of a, uh, 
I assume there's going to be kind of a bloodbath around her as because she is not a babe in the woods. She's an intelligent person. She knows, especially after dealing with Dario, she knows how to deal with. True. She has learned what these bad people are like around her. Um, But there's going to be a lot of backroom dealings and how her small council essentially comes to pass. And yeah, Tyrion and Euron's interactions will probably be fascinating because it's going to be kind of like uh, the Spider-Man meme where they're both pointing Mm -hmm. at each other. That's very true, and that would be interesting to witness. And yeah, there's so many potential interactions for Euron to spin off into. We'll we'll see a, we'll see which of those he gets to because he could, you know, that's one of the reasons I think he's interesting as a character is he's a nightmare version of all these other characters. So you drop him into a room and see what happens. <laughs> Euron interacting with Jorah will be one of my favorite things in the world. Can you imagine? And that would be great. What is he gonna make of Jorah fucking Mormont? <laughs> it's like, oh, you're what's between me and Danny, huh? Hmm. How threatening. Oh, oh God. And poor Barrison, if he survives. He, yeah, he won't want to at that point. And, the Lord. Fact, and it's the fact that Euron has a one-up on all these people, that he's magical. That he, True. If he can, if he, has a, if he has a glass candle, that's an explicit advantage. But even if he just has the abilities that Bran and Bloodraven have, which it seems like he does, I mean, that's the kind of person that will literally, by the end of the story, take over the world. That's, yep, that's a huge intelligence asset for sure. So hmm? that's why Bloodraven was so scary in part, and Euron could be even worse in that regard. God help us. I hope somebody kills Euron. Actually, th- that's a good question. How do you think Euron will die? Because there's no so way he no, survives. No shortage of ways that could happen, right? <laughs> Maybe he tries to be an other and that kills him. Maybe the others kill him somehow. Danny could burn him. You do have, again, Willis and Garland Terrell on the ground who mm-hmm. are there to oppose him. Uh, so I think... To whatever extent the fight against Euron happens in reality, you know, I think they'll be handling that. I think if, if there's a final blow, I like to think it'll be Bran, hmm. just because Euron is the opposite of Bran in so many ways. Bran was, Bran kicked Varimir Sixkin's ass in his second life in A Dance with Dragons. If Euron is a Varimir parallel, that would make sense. And I like the idea that Euron, like Varimir, will try to escape into a second life after he dies physically, and that Bran might be the one who stops him and like you know wipes him out for good on the astral plane, makes it makes him makes him a skid mark. Uh, on, on the stars, I would love that. Oh, that'd be such a perfect ending for Euron, that he thinks he has this big plan. He's going to be better than the Undying. He's going to be a god of this new world, and like a ten-year-old brand's kid waiting for him. Mm-hmm. Just flick rubs him out. Uh, there's also actually uh, Jay Moray in the chat has to say has to be by drowning in his Lyrian steel armor in the God's Eye. Yeah, the, also... the the dragon battle over the God's Eye that has hap- that happened in Fire and Blood, it, like Aemon One Eye and Euron. That seems like a direct parallel in terms of characters, doesn't it? That seems very good with the eye stuff drowning in the lake. The god's eyes right next to Harrenhal, which is where Ironborn ambitions were brought low by the Targaryens. You know that. So I could I could definitely see a situation in which like Euron's he dies on the mortal plane there on mm-hmm. the god's eye, and then Bran kicks his ass in the second life. If I had to guess the entire process by which Euron goes down, that would be my guess. It'd be interesting also if. Um... So the idea of the second life is essentially when your body dies, skin changers sometimes can jump to another body, but usually a lesser uh, intelligence body. So it's normally warg to wolf. It's normal that kind of thing, where or like Orel to his eagle, not Orel to another person, because there seems to be sort of a Star Wars idea where like the stronger the mind, the harder it is to take over. Like weak mindedness mm-hmm. versus strong mindedness and humans are stronger. Actually I think that's explicit in Veramir where he lists out the power tier of how hard it is to take over different animals. Um Yeah, that's true. 
So, this, yeah, that Euron would want to be grandiose in that regard. The interesting thing about Second Life is that once you jump into the other body, you're normally stuck there, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. the thing. Varamir jumps to One-Eye the Wolf. Haha, <laughs> One-Eye. Another One-Eye character. And then is stuck there um, until Bran essentially, I think, this dominates him. But he can't leave. He has his other wolves, but he it doesn't seem like he can go into them anymore. He's stuck in that one body. But if you could jump from one skin-changing body, like let's say you're onto another skin-changing body, could you do it again? Could you do the process over and over and over again? In theory, maybe. And it'd be interesting if um, if that's like Euron's endgame plan, where he's like... some. I've wondered in the past if Bloodraven is keeping around apprentices, because his body's pretty much dead at this point. So he's going to join the Weirwoods pretty soon. What if he could move to another skin-changing body and continue the process? That would be the kind of horror that Euron would envision for himself. And that if he tries and fails like Varamir, and like he said, a skin mark on the stars... Chef's kiss. Yeah, that would be great. And that makes total sense that that would he'd be going for a kind of immortality through sheer exploitation. And, uh, you, you know, like Varamir says, they would only know me as Thistle, but that would be enough, and Euron could live invisibly, but I think he'll be denied even that. It's actually a plot in one of George's stories, The Glass Flower. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that one I haven't read, but I think I know what you're talking about. There, yeah. there is an element of swapping bodies and taking a new one, and a character who mm -hmm. started off as a young woman is now... A giant cyborg robot and she's jumped bodies so many times that she doesn't even remember who she is i think that well, would be dang. the what i said well damn keep going yeah yeah, yeah and I, I could imagine that euron would enjoy that in the sense that i don't think he enjoys being euron Greyjoy, like the person no he doesn't enjoy being a human no, no he would like to be something else uh let's grab maybe one or two more because i'm losing my voice yeah. Um, yeah let's do one more and then i think i gotta pop out okay um let's see here Uh, did I, I don't know. I grabbed all the ones from the from Twitter already. Um, how powerful from Guilty Undertaker? Another good question. How powerful is Bran that he can take over Hodor with seeming ease? I think that's one of the true moments of horror in *The Song of Ice and Fire*. That is something that is well, well beyond the typical level of just awfulness. Because George has written explicitly in his other short stories that the worst thing you can do to somebody, and he always frames it as horror because he often has it from the perspective of the victim the losing of your own body and the losing of your mind somebody seizing it and replacing you is the worst thing you can go through there's um the story of the pear-shaped man it's explicitly about that it's a body being seized by another psychic weird guy it, it's a it's an awkward weird story but the idea is the same george considers this uh meat house man is about the same thing what happens when somebody loses their ability to control their own body to some kind of weird psychic controller, which the Meat House Man is, basically. Um, that he writes it in, but he frames it as, oh, this is okay, oh, this is just fine. That Brands is like, I mean, I'm going to give your body back. Don't worry, Hodor. It's one of those things that tells you what George really thinks about this, that he's he wants you to think about it and imagine it from Hodor's perspective, not Brands platitudes about how this is all cool absolutely and it's it's the most extreme form of power it's uh, the most exaggerated forms of the political power we see elsewhere in the series when septon Nerable describes in his broken man speech how another lord will just come along and shout that you are his now well what brand does to hodor is just an exaggerated magical version of that come along and making you his 
and it's 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 a, just the power over another person extended to this 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 magical realm and it's just yeah when bran the first time bran does it he's just reaching reaching and that's all george says about it and he's just suddenly inside his head and you know he does it he, he the, the fact that he feels the need to justify it to himself is so interesting because that shows he was raised in such a different environment than euron who never feels the need to tell himself <laughs> anything like that it's true it, it, it seems like maybe the difference between bran and uh, euron in terms of where they're going is the difference between Quellon and Ned. <laughs> that might might be what it comes down to. The pack, the pack survives. I think that's that's a big part of it. Euron is the way he is, a large part because he was dropped in this particular culture, and Bran was raised in a much different and I think better environment. And I think that has a huge influence in terms of what he does with his power. Certainly not going to be an angel with it. Certainly going to do a lot of damage. Still, still shouldn't have powers. No, nope. no one should be able to control someone else's <laughs> brain, no matter how nice you are. But that's why I think Bran is going to turn out differently than Euron. He does have limits, and he always has Ned's uh, advice and his rules in his head. He's always contrasting that versus what he wants to do and what Bloodraven is telling him he should do. It's like this mm. this roadblock, this break that he'll probably break through at one point, but at least it's trying to stop him. For whatever reason, like we talked about earlier, probably because of Quellon's many other problems in his realm and his family, Euron was left on his own, and so he never he may have not been receptive anyway because he seems like such a sociopath psychopath kind yeah. of person that maybe it never would have gotten through but explicitly it doesn't seem like he has the idea of an internal justice system given to him by his family exactly right yeah there's no, nothing on the inside Ooh, okay I think I think we're good that was this has been three hours of pure Euron <laughs> Greyjoy talk Oh, Thank boy. you so much again for having me, man. It was a d- utter delight, I assure you. This, it's, it's, it was really great to have you on, and I really enjoyed talking about Euron and the high fantasy aspects of him because there's so few characters that really are just that. You, you True. Ha- you have to look hard in A Song of Ice and Fire for it. It's usually layered, and um, you've done such a great job of raising the interest in Euron. And honestly, well, I think you. A, probably a large part of the reason that so many fans were upset at Euron in the show is because you made the case that the Eldritch Apocalypse is the way to go, and you're right. Well, thank you. What a, I, I love to add to people's misery about not getting what they deserve and expect. That's just wonderful. <laughs> you're welcome. But no, thank you for saying I mean, I've always really enjoyed writing about this character, and you know, the best thing about our, uh, writing about A Song of Ice and Fire is all the other people you get to write about it with. So mm-hmm. I, was, I was happy to do this with you. Oof. All right, do you want to do your end of stream plugs, tell people where to find you, what's coming up? Absolutely. So you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter, or you can find my site at poorquentin.com. And then I am on the Not A Cast podcast with Jeff Hartline, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish. So you can find us at Not A Cast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter, or go to notacastasoif.podbean.com to find all our available episodes. Our Patreon, where you can get early episodes and special episodes and ask us questions and all that good stuff, is at patreon.com slash notacastasoif. Definitely. Um, Nauticast is one of the better or close to the top of the Song of Ice and Fire podcast. I mean, there's different podcasts for everybody, but if you're looking for rereads and like intelligent breakdowns and especially um, writing critique, that's one thing you guys do a lot that um, that I always enjoy thinking about because it's not something I usually think about. Like some podcasts are just like looking at the content itself and discussing the details and like drawing those conclusions. You guys do a great job because you're both writers. 
you guys do a great job, or aspiring writers. Would be writers anyway. You guys... Absolutely. But no, we, we like talking about what George might have been thinking about and how he might mm-hmm. be trying to do things. And yeah, that's that's a lot of the fun. And Jeff, you know, Jeff and I just have a very uh, different but complementary strengths and interests in the series. So Definitely. that makes great. But as you say, there's tons of great podcasts, obviously. Girls Gone Canon, History mm-hmm. Westeros, Radio Westeros, you know, that's, that's again, the community is the great thing about it, including your good self, sir. Oh, thank you, Emmett. And as always, you can find, uh, you're obviously on the Joe Magician G- YouTube channel. There's also a podcast feed. You can find it. It's called The Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician because I am very clever and original. Um, the, all the videos actually get posted there as audio-only versions, including this. This will be chopped down and put up there as well. Um especially for the longer content if you need something to listen to in the car. You can also find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Actually, similar perks to uh, what you guys do. Uh, early access. Uh, you can ask questions like uh, like we did here, people from uh, my personal Slack, which you guys have as well. You can get access to a Slack, which is basically a big chat room. Um, exclusive artwork, that kind of stuff. And uh, what I have coming up, yeah, I need to do that again. So it will be a, sh- uh, a short video. It will be talk. Actually, I talked about it during this. Uh, the glass flower. I'm going to tie the glass flower into a song of ice and fire and talk about Arya and the faceless man coin she gets from Jai Hagar and how what that thing actually means and how George means it to function. What it tells you about the faceless man that this coin exists, um, and then how um, young Griff or Fagon, as he is known, will be taking um, Storm's End with, I think, George writing his rough draft of that in Fire and Blood, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, so, yeah, check out all that stuff. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, uh, Poor Quentin for Emmett, and at the Joe Magician for me. I changed it a while back. It's no longer Joe Magician 42. It makes some of the links break on Twitter, but that's okay. Yeah, so uh, thank you guys for coming out. I'll be doing the same thing next Saturday. I don't know if a guest or not. Um, this was a sort of fortuitous. Uh, Alt-Shift X did a great video on the Eldritch Apocalypse, and I was like, Let's talk to Evan. Uh, It seems like a good time to bring it up. So, yeah, thanks, everybody. Uh, Have a good rest of the weekend. Stay safe, and um, I'll see you next Saturday. Need to turn it off.